with great respect and with great kindness. It's a pleasure to welcome you all here to Spirit Rock this beautiful, stunning, glorious morning here in, in our beautiful little part of the world. My name is Christina Tavera, and I am the event coordinator for today's event. I'd also like to welcome everyone here live stream. Um, just as a reminder, we are recording the entire day, and uh, we won't be backtracking. So anything you say is, is going out into the world today. Today is a very, very special celebration. We have the uh, 100th birthday anniversary celebration of Ajahn Chah. Uh, for those of you who are new to Spirit Rock, this is uh, a picture uh, of him on here on the altar. And uh, we have Ajahn Pasana with us today as well from Abhayagiri Monastery. And um, we're very pleased to be able to celebrate this very, very, very special day with him. I'd also like to acknowledge that we have several uh, Spirit Rock teachers here today, so thank you for joining us today. These uh, events could not happen without the generosity of many, many volunteers. They were the ones who welcomed you and the ones who took your offerings and will be supporting the event throughout the day. They have uh, white name tags on. So if you need anything while you're in the hall, please feel free to ask them for some support and uh, they'll be able to help you. And if not, my office is to the left of the bookstore and I'm happy to help you as well. How many new people do we have in the hall today? Ooh. All right, good. Well, this is uh, the next few messages are just to help support, make your day go a little easier. And those of you who've been here for a while, you can start meditating now. <laughs> <laughs> your cell phones are invited to be turned off while you're in the hall, completely off, not on vibrate, please. That'll help anyone with electronic sensitivities in the hall. Uh, there are assisted hearing devices on the back wall. Jesse, who's supporting us in AV, um, can help you with one of those if you're having at all trouble hearing anything that's being said today. Uh, Q&A will happen today. Please wait for the mic. That way everyone who's on assisted hearing devices can hear you. You raise your hand. Uh, Ajahn Pasano, I'm going to just say your name all different ways today. I'm just going to do that. We'll be okay. Uh, wait until he points to you and wait till the mic gets to you. Uh, yes to food and drinks in the hall. Please feel free to um, make yourselves comfortable today. And you may eat in the hall today as long as we agree that this room is in silence. Otherwise, the meadow, the patio, the lobby will all be available uh, to make you feel more comfortable. You're going to be drawn to the wooden gates with the prayer wheel up the hill. You're just going to want to go there please don't go past the wooden gates. We actually have a silent retreat going on there. And instead, consider taking a silent retreat and you can go up there on another opportunity. There's a class also happening on the second floor and uh, they are on a three-day retreat upstairs. So if we can avoid the second floor in support of their process, that would be super helpful. And... The bookstore for your mindful shopping will be available uh, approximately 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes after uh, the class is over. But I would first peruse the table full of all the beautiful gifts of books that have been offered um, by Abayagiri Monastery, which are out there for you. So please enjoy them and uh, take as many as you'd like and take whatever you need to, for anyone. Uh, monastic days, which is what today is, are very special occasions here at Spirit Rock. It is the day where we um, get to support the tradition of offering the teachings for free. Um, so 
if you feel moved, though, at the end of the day or throughout the day to make an offering to either Abayagiri Monastery or to Spirit Rock, there are different opportunities for you to offer in the hall. So feel that generosity all the way down to your toes and offer freely. We um, have a shared meal today, and uh, that is also part of the monastic days. And for those of you who have offered food, we're going to invite you to come out to the lobby and help with the uh, ritual ceremony of offering food to the monks. I will give instructions around 11 o'clock. Until then, um, we're going to ask that you actually support the monks and uh, not eat if you, can, if you can do that for us, and that would be great. Again, my name is Christina. I'm grateful to be able to share this beautiful Sunday with all of you. And thank you for coming. Well, welcome everybody. Good to see so many people here. Good way to spend a Sunday. Just before Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend. Um... First of all, thank you to Spirit Rock for hosting the event and the, uh, all the uh, volunteers that have been chipping in and making it, it all happen. Um, that's how these things work. Uh, it relies on uh, a lot of people helping out, a lot of people participating. And uh, uh, the uh, tradition is one that... Uh, does rely on generosity uh, and uh, people stepping forward to give uh, of themselves in the same way that uh, uh, you know, the teachings are given given freely for for whatever people uh, uh, are, take a think a benefit. Um, as Christina mentioned, uh, there we brought down uh, some. Uh, books uh, today. I mean, it's part of our tradition, but also today it's uh, Ajahn Chah Day, so all of the books are either the the brand new uh, biography of Ajahn Chah uh, or uh, various teachings uh, of his that have been published over the years. So those are are available, and people are welcome to help themselves. The, uh, today I'm going to use the, the new biography as a um, kind of basis for the, for the day long and uh, <coughs> do various readings and, um, and I'll, be, I'll be opening it up for a Q&A um, uh, during, the, during the day if people have questions that come up uh, about... Uh, uh, about what I've read or about anything really. Uh, so happy to uh, to field those. And <coughs> uh, the reality is, I mean, this is this is the new biography. It's not. Uh, so we're only going to scratch the surface. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to read it all for you today. <laughs> um, <coughs> and. Uh, but it, but I'm going to try to sort of hit a few few points uh, in uh, Ajahn Chah's uh, life and teachings uh, that uh, that have been touched on, and 
and then be uh, um, also want to be taking time to meditate, practice together, because uh, uh, Sajjan Chah's um, emphasis throughout his whole teaching was about practice, and that uh, uh, even if you, um, he used to say that just if if you just know the teachings um, uh, study them and don't practice them it's like a, uh, the spoon that goes in the soup it doesn't it doesn't know the taste of the soup and just it's it's just sitting in the sitting in the sitting in the soup so uh, to be able to to t- taste the flavor of these teachings uh, one has to put them into practice and, and uh, so we want to be doing that today taking time for sitting meditation and walking meditation as well so we'll have a day of, of a practice together and uh, uh, sharing reflecting uh, on the uh, on the teachings um, the uh, uh, the actual uh, book that I'm I will be reading from uh, is uh, um, written by an uh, English monk, Ajahn Jayasaro. And uh, as Ajahn Chah was getting older and sicker, and it was obvious that uh, he was not going to recover, and he was uh, uh, it wasn't uh, he wasn't going to be around for too much longer then there was a group of us um, students of Ajahn Chah of course mostly the the Thai monks who were close to him uh, realized that well we we'd better start making some preparations for his death and his cremation and uh, and part of those preparations was preparing a, a biography. And it was quite an honor that the, the Thai monks asked us, the, the Westerners, to, to take responsibility for, for that, uh, uh, that, that biography and that, that book. And Ajahn Jayasaro uh, was uh, uh, headed that up. And so that for Ajahn Chah's cremation, his death in 1992, his cremation in 1993, uh, then uh, we had a big book, nicely done, very good book, um, uh, of Ajahn Chah's life and his teachings. And then everybody started saying, well, when are we going to get the English version? And... And then Ajahn Jayasaro realized it's, you can't just translate it. You need to give the context, you need to give the perspective in, in Thai. Everybody knows what a monk is or what a Tudong monk is and what the traditions are. So uh, it needed a lot more work to fill it out and really should be its own book. So... Uh, Ajahn Jayasara said, well, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> he says, somebody else can do it. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and so a few years passed, and then somebody, 
said, uh, oh, well, um, we, can, we haven't got this book, we should translate it. And then, so that, that motivated Ajahn Jayasar to actually start working on it. So anyway, the process is dragged out and, and dragged on. And uh, uh, Ajahn Jayasaro is a bit of a perfectionist, so that he would write something really good that everybody said, this is great, let it sit for a while, come back, not satisfied, rewrite it. And uh, so anyway, it's taken 20 years. We have a book. <laughs> and I think it was worth the wait. So, um, One of the things that I thought I would... Uh, do uh, is uh, in the because uh, <coughs> the uh, the northeast of Thailand where Ajahn Chah um, uh, um, grew up uh, is a uh, yeah it's It's an area that is really steeped in the uh, in the uh, Theravada tradition. Um, it is um, within the culture. Uh, it is very very solid, and um, and it uh, it has supported a practice tradition for many generations now, and so that most of the the uh, um, uh, so I think when you think of Theravada Buddhism in Thailand, you know, it's, it's definitely not uniform. And it's definitely not. Um, it isn't as if everywhere they're all practicing and they're all practicing Buddhists and, and it's all sort of somehow systematized and, and it all, you know, everybody knows what it is and follows it. Well, it isn't how it works. Uh, depends on the areas, depends on the traditions, on the teachers, and uh, and then even within that, uh, there's a there's a lovely kind of anarchy to it all. You know, really, um, Thais don't like to be organized, and uh, there's a few Thai people in the audience. I'm sure they're not offended by that. <laughs> it's a, it's a uh, it's just a it's the way it works, and there's a there's a freshness to it uh, that I feel is that that then lots of possibilities uh, in that way. In fact, there was one of the uh, one of our monks in our tradition was was uh, um, preparing to take ordination. Uh, this is quite a few years ago, and. Uh, his uh, father was very upset. His father was uh, a successful businessman, um, and uh, his his son had got a great education, led a comfortable life. And then, what are you doing? I can't believe that you're going and ordaining as a monk and joining some organized religion. And and uh, his uh, his son said, "Well, you don't have to worry, Dad." Um, Buddhism Thailand's not organized. <laughs> so I, and, uh, uh, that sort of captures it. 
So I would like to just set the tone a bit of the uh, uh, before even speaking about Ajahn Chah, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the the sense of the the, the picture of the. The, the northeast of Thailand is a, um, uh, it's a part of Thailand, but it's not a Thai-speaking region. Uh, it's a Lao-speaking region. Uh, so they don't speak. That, that they're, they're, it's a, so it's a different culture. And, uh, and I can remember when I first went to Thailand uh, and then went to live with Ajahn Chah and uh, we just established... Uh, the International Forest Monastery. And one of the older villagers, was their son was working in Bangkok and was living in Bangkok. And they were going to go down to visit. And when they said, they didn't say, oh, I'm going to go down to, I'm going to go to Bangkok to visit my son. So I'm going to Thailand to visit my son. So that's a... Uh, it's its own uh, kind of unique, uh, unique culture. So anyway, just getting a picture. Uh-huh. The Thais and, and I'll, this is from the from the book. The Thais and Lao share a gentle, easygoing nature, and are remarkably tolerant people. The idea of persecuting others for holding beliefs different from their own has always been inc- incomprehensible to them. They're not particularly cerebral. Abstract theories and philosophies rarely excite them. But they are skillful pragmatists with a considerable talent for compromise. The bamboo bending in strong winds has always been one of their favorite images. They avoid open confrontation wherever possible and consider the unfiltered expression of strong feeling to be uncouth and immature. They admire the ability to remain calm and unruffled under stress and they aspire to, quote-unquote, a cool heart. If the Lao differ in any discernible way, it is in their more pronounced resilience. As with all peoples, they are full of contradictions. A somewhat exaggerated concern for rank and status is, for example, often combined with a deep love of independence. Given the loyalty and devotion they have always shown to the rather austere tenets of Theravada Buddhism, It is the frank, uncomplicated sensuality of the people that is perhaps their most surprising feature. Their culture has never considered sensual desires to be a source of guilt. But although they often display a great love of language, finery, and food, in fact, all the so-called good things of life, they reserve their greatest respect for those who can renounce them. By any of the contemporary secular standards by which the development of a culture is measured, GNP, political power, technological innovation, vibrant art, Isan is an insignificant backwater. It's people unremarkable. But from a Buddhist viewpoint, it would not be too fanciful to consider Isan a Isan is a Thai word for northeast. Isan, a superpower. Throughout the 20th century in particular, Isan was an abiding stronghold of Buddhism at a time when all through Asia, other darker isms, imperial, communal, capital, material, were wreaking, off, were wreaking awful depredations. 
the vast majority of Thailand's 300,000 monastics are from Isan. Most significantly, almost every one of the Thai monks of the modern age believed to have realized enlightenment was born in one of the peasant farming villages of the northeast, many of them in the quote-unquote province of sages, Ubon Rajatani. And that is where Ajahn Chah grew up, and that is where his monastery is. That's where the the international monastery is for uh, for for uh, for Westerners. And uh, so that's a perspective. Uh, and uh, and there's another aspect that I thought I would. Um, introduce was also the sense I mean one you're getting a sense of the culture that he grew up in uh, but then also part of the culture is also um, connection with family Uh, very strong family ties are always the case even for uh, monastics, monastics. Uh, even though one is, uh, say, renounced the world, one's left the world, uh, that uh, those ties to to family are still very strong. That's and it goes all through the culture, and even when one is uh, is uh, is ordained, it's in it's in different ways. Uh, um, uh, and it'll be shown in yeah in different. Manifestations, but uh, the, that connection is very, very strong. So that uh, um, the um, Ajahn Chah had been um, lived a he grew up um, yeah in the village and. He, he, you know, he showed a, um, a say an inclination to. I mean, he was a very gregarious boy, and he turned into a gregarious man, uh, a teacher. Um, but uh, a large circle of friends, and then he left. Uh, his family and uh, he was nine nine years old and uh, on his own accord uh, went to the monastery to to live in the monastery and that was uh, his sister talks about it um, we we checked in with all the family his sister was because we'd heard he left at a very young age and said so oh, yeah, he was he was working with us, and he, he wasn't his heart wasn't in it, and he was just this. And by Ajahn Chah's own account, he was. I know why do I have to water these plants and do this and that? Is look after tobacco plants, and it's only the adults that smoke them, and it's just, <laughs> and he was he wasn't satisfied with that. And anyway, he was, but anyway, he he, he was. They were doing some pounding of, of some rice and a splinter uh, from the uh, from the pounder flew off and hit him and hurt him and he and I was like that's it I'm going to the monastery nine years old he's done with that and he's, so he's 
he was pulled from a, a young age uh, to the monastery, lived as a, uh, a monastery helper for some time, then he ordained as a novice later. Uh, so, but of course, the thing is, is it's still in the village. Uh, it's not as if it's you know some distant area somewhere. He's still he's still in, in the monasteries are in the village. The forest monastery tradition is is quite consciously separated a bit, uh, but the uh, uh, so there was this uh, ongoing. Uh, connection with family and then he ordained when he became 20 years old ordained as a as a fully ordained monk and uh, but still living in he lived in his home village monastery for a couple of years and then he did some study um, and in those monasteries it never had an introduction to meditation uh, it, it's not it doesn't really play a part in the, say, village monastery life or village Buddhist life. Meditation is something um, a bit exotic, um, even a bit scary. Um, and uh, so that uh, for many years he studied, uh, and it was about... Um, and he was away studying at a... He'd done his basic studies. He was getting ready to do his formal scholastic degree. Um, and, um, and it was just before his exams. And uh, he, uh, he, he got news that his father uh, was ill. So I'll read a little bit of that. Because also part of it is is the again this uh, how uh, both Ajahn Chah and most <coughs> monks um, and people practicing are and that connection between um, family is 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 quite strong. So towards the end of that year, Lumpal received dismaying news: his father had fallen seriously ill. Lumpa's exams were to take place shortly, and if he went home now, a whole year's work would be wasted. Should he chance it and take his exams before going home? It was no choice at all. He only had one father, and exams could wait another year. He rushed home as soon as he could to find his father's condition in steady decline. Lumpa's father, Pama was proud to have a son in the robes, and whenever Lumpa visited home, would always encourage him in his efforts and make a request. Please don't disrobe, venerable sir. I invite you to remain as a monk indefinitely. This is a deliberately literal translation. It's hard to convey in the English language the tenor of a conversation between a Thai monk and his parents. Filial piety is greatly emphasized in Thai culture, and the relationship between parents and children is generally warm and close. Yet when the son becomes a monk, their way of relating to each other instantly and radically changes. The parents are now lay people. They sit on a lower seat at a respectful distance. They use monastic honorifics when referring to their son 
and humble personal pronouns when referring to themselves. To an observer from another culture, this formality might, at first, seem odd or perhaps unnatural. But for the family itself, it is simply the accepted convention. The stilted speech form forms help everyone to remember that while the son's identity as a monk has not erased his identity as a member of his family, it has transformed it. Now, as he lay weak and shrunken on his deathbed, Poma made the request one last time. You've made the right choice. Don't change it. Lay life is full of so many kinds of suffering and difficulties. There's no real peace or contentment in it. Remain as a monk. On previous occasions, Lumpa had always kept silent, his head slightly bowed, showing respect, but an unwillingness to make such a commitment. This time, however, he replied, No, I won't disrobe. Why would I do that? His father's face relaxed into a warm, contented smile, and he drifted into sleep. When Palma discovered that Lumpa's exams would take place shortly, he urged him to take, return to his, his monastery. But his re, this request was refused. Instead, Lumpa helped to nurse his father for the 13 more days and nights that he lingered on. It was December when the days have a, have a drained, subdued tone and a cold wind blows down through Isan from China. When first thing in the morning everyone lights fires outside their houses to warm themselves and kites anchored high in the air utter their melancholy cry tui, 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 tui. they put on a kind of a, a bamboo thing onto the, and it makes a sound and you hear it all through these, these nights. One day at the end of the year Paul Ma's life came to its end. In the period following his father's death Lumpa's monastic life began to follow a new direction. The change was almost certainly precipitated by his loss, having for some years steeped himself in Buddhist texts, analyzing the human condition in general terms. He had come face to face with mortality on its most personal level. The human body is a mere conglomeration of the elements of solidity, fluidity, heat, and vibration. The inevitability of old age, sickness, and death and of the separation from all we love. Prominent features of passages learned by rote in the monastery must have acquired much deeper meaning for him. Seeing his father in pain before death, helping place his lifeless body in the coffin, watching it, as it, watching it burn on the funeral pyre, gathering the bones remaining in the cremation ashes, all would have made a profound impression on the young monk. Many years later, Lumpal recalled that on returning to Wat, Wat Ban Nong Lat, which was where he was studying, uh, after his father's funeral, he made a solemn resolve. I dedicate my body and mind, my whole life, to the practice of the Lord Buddha's teachings in their entirety. I will realize the truth in this lifetime. I will let go of everything and follow the teachings. No matter how much suffering and difficulty I have to endure, I will persevere. Otherwise, there will be no end to my doubts. I will make this life as even and continuous as a single day and night. 
I will abandon attachments to mind and body and follow the Buddha's teachings until I know the truth for myself. As a result, Lumpa started practicing meditation more seriously, but not without difficulties. And this is Lumpa speaking again. The first year of meditation, I got nothing from it. My mind just teemed with thoughts about things I wanted to eat. It was really hopeless. Sometimes during a meditation session, it would be as if I was actually eating a banana. I could feel it in my mouth. The defilements have been in the mind for many lifetimes. When you come to discipline it, there's bound to be a struggle. So it isn't, I mean, Ajahn Chah had this uh, tremendous uh, resolve, uh, but he also didn't find it easy. And, uh, and I think that's, that's something that uh, um, for, um, uh, as an example, um, the, uh, uh, his honesty in dealing with his difficulties was something that was really refreshing. And uh, uh, sometimes it's so easy to hear about spiritual masters or read a read a spiritual biography, and and it's like it's just so depressing. <laughs> you know, they they just they come into the world enlightened, and then they just get even better. You know, <laughs> so it's, uh, but uh, but Ajahn Chah was willing to 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 speak about his. Is uh, the difficulties he had and and training and training uh, his own mind and uh, and that uh, that was was something as I say that it was really it was really really very refreshing and uh, one time uh, would have been I don't know very late 80s, 70s, maybe early 80s, anyway, uh, Jack Cornfield came, of course he had studied with Ajahn Chah, he lived with Ajahn Chah, and uh, he left the robes, and at one time he brought a group uh, of students uh, from America um, to, uh, to Thailand and went to um, visit Ajahn Chah and spent uh, quite a few days um, at Ajahn Chah's monastery and the uh, the uh, uh, Western monastery there. And um, one of the and I remember one of the questions that that uh, was asked in the group uh, was that um, what was it that what quality was it that Ajahn Chah thought uh, for himself that uh, he possessed or what he, um, how he approached practice that allowed him to succeed in the practice and, and to reap the, reap the fruits of the practice. And, uh, and Ajahn Chah um, thought about it a bit and he said, he just said, I dared to do it, and I, like I, in 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 or I, in, in, in for the ties. It's a glad, 
Glad how. And sort of like saying, I, I dared to do it, or I had the courage to do it, or I was audacious and even trying to do it. And uh, and so that 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 willingness to 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 just yeah to take teachings as that, and as in that uh, uh, that resolution that he uh, that he uh, that he made um, that uh, that there was a uh, um, you know this resolve to to really dedicate the body and mind the whole life it's okay just as if it was a day and a night and just give himself completely to the to the teachings and to the practice and so that was uh, that's uh, that willingness uh, daring to do it is, is a uh, is something that uh, uh, that he points to and I think that as an example because I think also one of the things that uh, Ajahn, when Ajahn Chah would speak about the uh, the Buddha's teachings, um, one of the uh, examples he would use was that you know the the teach the truth of the Buddha's teachings are always here for us to experience, uh, and he said it's it's just like in the ground there is water, and all you need to do is dig a well. And and it might be a shallow well, it might be a deep well, it might be a well that's difficult to 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 dig, it might be a well that's easy to dig. But if you stick with it and and you, you dig your hole in the ground, you're gonna come across water. And that uh, and that was in the same way that the the truth of the Buddhist teachings are are always present. And we just have to give ourselves to the to the to the practice and put be willing to put forth the effort to to reach that to do it and I think that that his his life uh, exemplified that and and his uh, uh, um, yeah, and then of course the uh, um, the the kind of You know, the 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 model that he 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 uh, uh, gave to the world of his own presence uh, was is a uh, it's like a testament to that. There, the Maybe what I'll do is just open it up for questions for a bit. I don't want to go too long, and then uh, and then people have questions, and then we'll we'll have a few questions. Then I'll uh, I'll give a reading that is practice oriented, and then we can go and do some do some do some practice together, sitting, walking. So any questions?
There's a hand up in the back there. Hi. Um, I had a question about you. You said when Ajahn Chah was a young, uh, younger monk, he was almost afraid of meditation. I was just yeah. curious about that. Well, I mean, a lot of it is, is, is uh, I say, cultural in the sense that uh, somehow the, oftentimes the meditation was seen as something that uh, you do in order to get some kind of psychic powers you or you try or there's some kind of almost some magical mystical element to it the idea of it being for mindfulness and discernment is is you know they for, that got forgotten and, and uh, it wasn't so ordinary uh, so that that uh, it was seen as something very um, you know, see, uh, out of the ordinary and and uh, um, and so that's one of the things that the the forest tr- tradition over these last generations has uh, introducing it to uh, to the uh, to the culture has made it made it much more ordinary and accessible. Uh, for people all through all through the uh, through the society and uh, but in 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 those days and then also say if if there and there were meditating monks there were forest monks uh, but oftentimes there were certain there's a certain looked on yeah with a certain trepidation uh, they because they live in places that uh, nobody wants to live in. They live in charnel grounds and forests where there are lots of wild animals and and malignant spirits, malicious spirits, um, and you know ghosts that are really fearful. And you know how do they do that? They must be something weird. <laughs> you know, so so that that you know within the ordinary culture, it's, it's seen as and definitely out of the ordinary. Yeah, question, one more question back there. Hello. I was just wondering, um, how common was it for children to continue once they ordained at such a young age? How common is it was it for them to actually make it to adulthood and stay in the robes still. Pretty rare. Adolescence is tough everywhere. <laughs> um, great foundation, though. Um, uh, so that that uh, see that's the thing in Thai culture that uh, uh, ordination's never never really been seen as something that you should you know you have to do. You're expected to do. Uh, all of your life, it, it's something that is it, it's noble and worthy, but it's also um, again this 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 pragmatic view of it. yeah, it's not easy. Uh, so that when when somebody does is able to do it, then so oh great, sadhu. Uh, but uh, when it's not uh, possible, uh, they want to leave then. Then it's not it's not looked down on. It's not not considered shameful in any way. Um, so that that uh, uh, 
uh, yeah, and and oftentimes like doing temporary ordination is is seen as a as a uh, um, as a kind of a requisite for maturing in the uh, uh, in the culture. So that that again, this is a different culture. So, um, but um, and especially in the old days, and if you hadn't. If you hadn't taken, been ordained during your childhood, growing up as a or as a young man, and then you're an adult and you want to get married, and you haven't ordained, and the family looks at that and they say, "I don't know, he's not very trustworthy," <laughs> you know, and and the, and the 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 idiom that they use is not ripe. It's not, not ripe, not mature. Uh, so uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's different, different, different perspective. But certainly within a, uh, it's it, it not uh, not strange to uh, to take ordination and then to leave again, uh, and uh, and it, it's more the exception when somebody is able to to stay. And even Ajahn Chah left when he was an adolescent. I um, can't remember, he was about 17 or so and he left for a couple of years and when he was 20 he went back. Uh, so that, 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 uh, that's, it's not, uh, not a strange thing. To me it's, it's quite a, quite a wonderful addition to a, to a, to a cult, an option uh, in a culture. Yeah. There's be a, a light coming. I was wondering what kind, whether you know what kind of meditation Achen Cha was uh, following in the early days, and and then related to that, um, whether it's known what the um, meditating, what you're calling the meditating monks, mm-hmm. were actually doing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just interested in sort of the prehistory and what was going on in the 19th century up till yeah. that time. Yeah, uh, I think, and um, I, I don't think anybody knows for sure, but. <laughs> But I think the the uh, the most common meditation, even nowadays, northeast of Thailand, is a, a recitation of the of the word Buddha. So that, uh, and then conjoining it with the breath. So an in breath, Buddha, so a recitation and recollection. So that there's both a, a mindfulness of breathing. Um, but not in a kind of full-blown 16-stage Anapanasati way, but um, you know, fundamental mindfulness of breathing and a recollection of the Buddha. And that's your fundamental ground that, that everybody tends to grow up out of and, and very, very calm and very widespread, and uh, both in the present and I assume in the past, and in the uh, forest monasteries there would be a meditative tradition, and there was there would be a lot of emphasis on uh, body contemplation and element contemplation in terms of tradition. Uh, so, in conjunction with the the uh, say the, the recollection of the Buddha and a fundamental mindfulness of breathing, then 
element contemplation was a, a strong aspect and the contemplation of the body in terms of 32 parts of the body. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I once looked uh, to see if there was any history of what people were doing 17th, 18th, 19th century. I couldn't find anything. No, no, no. You, yeah, it's very... There, uh, in Thailand, the uh, history is not... They're not great historians. Uh, and and much of the, the say, the written records uh, of the country were, were also destroyed during the time of the, the sack of, of Ayutthaya, which was this incredible cultural center and hub of all the knowledge, but then it was sacked and burnt and they, they lost everything. But, it, but then, uh, then I'm not 100% sure either because there's, there's not, a, not a huge tradition of, of, of history. Not at all like, a, say, like a Chinese culture, which is, uh, you can go, I mean, the rice harvest 3,000 years ago. You, you can, <laughs> Yes, Dennis. Thank you, Ajahn. Um I'm I am a Longpur. I'm uh, I'm just interested. What came going through my mind? Um, the social context, political context, and how Isan managed to withstand the waves of um, communist overthrow that came through Laos and Cambodia and, mm. and Thailand itself, um, which was so devastating for the monastic community. And obviously, Ajahn Chah would have been very aware and impacted by that. And I'm, I'm wondering how the people of Isan, I mean, there's a whole political story, but I wonder how they understood themselves, how they were able to withstand that, um, that threat, really, to, to their existence. Well, I mean, it's a uh, it's a mixed story, also, uh, in that uh, uh, the Isan was also seen as a hotbed of con- communism, uh, and uh, um, uh, I remember uh, Lumpur Panyananda telling a story of going to give a talk at a school in Ubon, uh, in a it's out past Tumsing Pet. And uh, he went to the school to give a talk, and and you into the go, go into the school assembly hall. This is in the probably early seventies, mid seventies, and uh, the assembly hall in the school. And this, rather than a picture of the king and queen, is a picture of Marx and Lenin, you know, on the, uh, the in the main assembly hall. So it wasn't uh, uniform. Um, and um, when Ajahn Fun passed away, then Ajahn Chah took uh, his community. Um, I mean, there was about uh, it was almost there was about a hundred monks, about fifty nuns, group of lay people, and busloads. And we went as a group to pay pay respects to to Ajahn Fun, and every twenty five miles, uh, not miles, kilometers. So every twenty five kilometers, uh, there is a uh, military checkpoint. 
It's just the communist presence was, was so, and military presence was so strong. So it was a, a bit of a battleground. But it's also the, um, the Isan in general. I remember one lay person who I knew um, saying, um, you know, there was a lot of concern that the, that the northeast of Thailand was 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 uh, was going to, go, you know, go communist completely, and and uh, um, and it isn't as if there wasn't social problems that were were needed to be addressed. But uh, um, and he said, I never believed it because in the northeast of Thailand, everybody owns their own land. And say there's just no way that that they would be willing to give that up, and there's a very strong independence and strong sense of small farmers living their quite simple lives independently but connected as communities so that that was a, a very strong uh, strong element um, but also that that uh, um, the this very strong um, uh, uh, um, how do you say devotion to to Buddhism the Buddhist practice amongst everybody whether you were for the government or whether you were you were a communist supporter. Um, that was sort of; those were sort of political elements. Buddhism was kind of that's what you did. And uh, um, I remember um, a uh, uh, lay woman. Uh, you, Kitty, sorry, you probably remember Rachini, friend of Kesari's, telling the story of of going to uh, a katina ceremony, end of the range retreat, katina ceremony, robe offering. And uh, it was in the, uh, 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 it was one of the Ajahn Man disciples, Ajahn One, uh, and uh, and then he, uh, they they had the main group, and then uh, and they stayed in the city, and then the smaller group uh, went out to spend the night at the monastery, listen to Dhamma talks, practice meditation, chant for the night before the actual. Katina offering the next day. So then they're driving along and it's in the uh, in the mountains around hills around Sakonakon area. And um, so they get a certain distance and they hit a of course there's military checkpoints and it's getting later in the day and then they then the military checkpoints turn in from being say, Thai military checkpoints into communist guerrilla checkpoints. And then they, so then they get checked and they, they, get, they get escorted into the monastery and, and the uh, and people in their, uh, the villagers plus all of the various um, communist guerrillas in their, their, their black gear are there meditating, chanting, uh, listening to teachings, 
and practice through the night, and in the morning time, uh, then uh, the, the 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 ones in 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 black kind of disappear, and then the then the busloads of of people from Bangkok comes uh, escorted by the military and their green fatigues, and and uh, they listen to Dhamma teachings and join in the chanting. <laughs> so it's it's one of the wonderful things of Thailand. <laughs> So they, they, there's many ways of that resilience, uh, uh, but also the, there was a, they had common, they had a common core of of of, of their culture, and uh, and they were uh, uh, and that independence, uh, uh, I think very very strong. Yeah. yeah, you had your hand up before. Yeah, um, I'm just curious what theories there are for kind of why that area, uh, be it because of the cultural characteristics, the traditions that were present, kind of was or has become such an epicenter for spiritual. Um, well, there's all sorts of speculation, but but uh, no real no real evidence of anything. <laughs> uh, I, personally, I w- I would say one, it's it, it's poor. It's it's not comfortable. Uh, the, there's a simplicity to life there that's very basic, very fundamental, uh, and uh, that uh, there's a certain resilience uh, within the culture because people live hard lives. It's not easy, and and there's a, a very strong sense of community and communal. Ties that are that are that are built from the time they're very, very young, uh, and that that I, those are two things that really, you know, if you're practicing meditation, developing Buddhist practice over any period of time, there's this one. There's a, a necessity to rely on patience and resilience, and two to rely on others, and. This is, it's not, uh, it's not sort of the lone kind of cowboy going off and, you know, making it, you know, being, being, being victorious. It's really, uh, so those elements, that's my own perspective. One more question. There's one back there. Ajahn Pasano, if you don't mind uh, my asking this question, um, you're one of the first Western monks uh, that came to see and uh, study under Ajahn Chah along with Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Brahm, and Ajahn Amaro. And I was wondering how Ajahn Chah gave you lessons, especially in the beginning when you didn't speak Thai and Ajahn Chah didn't speak English. How was that communication done? And then during uh, talks, like Dhamma talks, obviously it was probably given in Thai. So then how did you understand and how did you learn Thai? Or what was your kind of like <laughs> understanding of the Dhamma during that time? Yes, well, yeah, I learned Thai. And then he didn't speak it. <laughs> he spoke Lao dialect. So it was, it was really... It was really uh, but, the, uh, uh, but, yeah, I mean, you're young... And uh, just do it. And, and, 
and and also uh, I think one of the things that that uh, you know Ajahn Chah of course would be asked all the time what how can how how can you teach these Westerners they they're, you know they don't speak the same language and you don't speak their language and he said ah teaching Westerners is not difficult just like teaching buffalo <laughs> pull them here pull them there they'll learn <laughs> you know, so, you know, so which is is particularly funny in you know you know comparing a, an educated Westerner to a buffalo uh, uh, and but the principle is really important in that the learning is through experience. Uh, it's not really through the words. Uh, and there's another time when he, he gave it a, an example in terms of, like with hot water. He says, yeah, yeah, you've got a, got a glass of water and a warm water and, and uh, you try to tell people what you've got and and when you say it in English, it's one thing, in French, it's another, in Thai, it's another, in Lao, it's another, in Chinese, it's another. So the language doesn't necessarily tell you what it is. But if you put your finger in it, then you'll know for sure what it is. And this is the language of Dhamma is the language of feeling. So language of feeling, language of experience. So that that's it's a very important principle. So he would he would lead us. He would set the example for us, uh, and uh, that would uh, that would really and um, you know, we we had to be willing to learn from that. Um, you're not always going to get an explanation. <laughs> okay. What I'd like to do is just give a a reading uh, about practice. A few pages that that uh, uh, give a perspective on Ajahn Chah's approach to practice and training, and then uh, we'll take the opportunity to have a, have some time of. So walking and sitting. So this is after Ajahn Chah has started his his meditation practice. He's gone off and practicing in the forests and and uh, as a Tudong monk, as a wandering uh, wandering monk. Lumpa continued his practice at Ban Kokyao for almost three weeks, and then set off walking once more. As he passed through the small villages of Sisongkran, he felt a profound sense of calm and fluency pervading his mind. The Dhamma flowed effortlessly, both in answering his own doubts and also those of the villagers that, some nights, would come to his gloat, and that's his umbrella in the forest with mosquito net, bearing offerings of tobacco and betel nut. And there's a footnote on that. Uh, as smoking is not expressly forbidden in the Vinaya and the health hazards associated with it were not known at the time, many forest monks of Lumpa's generation smoked. The Sangha of Watpapong outlawed the practice in the late 1960s. Um, so bearing offerings of tobacco and betel nut lit by their smoking torches. 
Lung Pao crossed over the Mekong River into Laos for a short period in order to pay his respects at a famous shrine. After returning to Isan, he decided to rest at a monastery outside Ban Nong Ka. At that time, his old iron bowl had a number of cracks and small holes in it, and the abbot offered him a replacement. It was another opportunity for him to reflect on his desires for requisites, and to be reminded that his practice was still not as unshakable as he would like. At Ban Kokyao, he had experienced a profound level of peace, but now, not too much later, defilements led him astray once more. And then this is Lung talking about his experience. They offered me a bowl, but it was cracked and it had no lid. Then I remembered once as a child taking the water buffaloes out to graze and seeing other lads carving vines and weaving them into hats. So I asked for some rattan. I wove a disc and a rectangle and then joined them. I had my bowl lid. The only thing was it looked like a sticky rice basket. On arms round it was a real eyesore. The villagers referred to me as the big bowl monk. I just dismissed it. I tried again. I worked day and night on it. It was the wrong kind of effort, fired by craving. At night time, I would light a torch and work alone in the forest. Weaving the strips backwards and forwards, I knocked against the end of the torch and drippings from it scalded my hand. I still have the scar to this day. I came to my senses. What am I doing? I'm thinking about this in the wrong way. I've become a monk, and now I'm going without sleep just to get robes and a bowl. This is the wrong sort of effort. I put down the work, I sat, and thought things through, and then I practiced some walking meditation. But as I walked back and forth, my mind returned to the bowl lid, and I went back to the, back to the work, completely absorbed, until just before dawn. I was tired. I took a break and began to meditate. As I sat, the thought came again. This is wrong. I started to drowse a little, and I saw a vision of a huge Buddha. He said, Come here, I'm going to give you a Dhamma talk. I went towards him and prostrated. He gave me a discourse about the requisites. He said that they are merely the accessories of the body and mind. I woke with a start, my body shaking. Even now I can still hear the sound of his voice in my ear. I'd learned my lesson. I'd been blinded by desire, but now I stopped. I worked for a reasonable time and then rested walked and practiced sitting meditation. This was a really important point. Formally, whatever work it might be, if it was still unfinished and I put it aside and went to meditate, my mind would still be attached to it. I couldn't shake it off. However much I had tried to lever it out of my mind, it wouldn't budge. So I took this as a mental training, a training in abandonment, in putting down. Whatever I did, I determined not to finish it quickly. After working on the bowl lid for a while, I would go and practice meditation. But whether I was walking or standing, my mind would be wrapped up in the bowl lid and wouldn't concentrate on anything else. I saw how difficult it is for the mind to let go. It clings so tenaciously, but I gained another principle of contemplation. Don't hurry to get anything finished. Do a little and then put it down. Look at your mind. If it's still going round and round with the unfinished work, 
then look at how that feels. That's when it starts to be fun. Go to battle. I was determined not to stop until I had trained my mind to the point that when I worked, I just worked. And when I stopped, I would be able to put the work down in my mind. I would make work and rest separate, discreet, so that there would be no suffering. But it was extremely difficult to train in that way. Attachments are difficult to abandon, difficult to put down. The idea I'd had of getting things over and done with as soon as possible wasn't exactly wrong. But from the point of view of Dhamma, it's not correct. Because there's nothing that you can know once and for all if your mind refuses to stop. I came to reflect on feeling. How can you let go of pleasant and unpleasant feelings when they're still present? It's the same as, the, as with the bowl lid. So this was the principle. Don't do anything with the thought of getting it finished. Put it down at regular intervals and go and practice walking meditation. As soon as my mind went back to worrying about the work, I'd tell it off, oppose it. I'd train myself, talk to myself alone in the forest. I just kept fighting. Afterwards, it was less of a burden. As I kept practicing, I found it easier to separate work from rest. After that, whether it was sewing robes or crocheting a bowl cover or whatever I was doing, I trained myself. I could do it, or I could put it down. I got to know the cause of suffering, and that is how Dhamma arises. Subsequently, whether I was standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, I felt a radiance and enjoyment that lasted until, finally, the bowl lid was finished. But an alms round, the villagers still looked at me and my bowl with baffled expressions. Sometime later, I remembered having once seen a kind of tray in someone's house in Bangor, that's his home village, that would make a reasonable bowl lid. So that's what I did. I got hold of a tray, bent the edges up, soldered them, and used that as my lid. I never thought of asking anything from anyone. But Lumpa's tribulations were not at an end. Iron alms bowls demanded a lot of attention. Monks had to be constantly on their guard against rust. One method of protecting the bowl was to varnish it. And this is him speaking again. Later on, I remembered that as a novice, I'd once seen a monk using the sap of the gyan tree to varnish his bowl. So I thought I'd give it a try. I went, I went down to Bangkok in Lernokta district because there's a lot of gyan wood down there. And I painted my whole bowl in the lid. A, a layman suggested putting it in a basket and lowering it down into a well so that it would dry more quickly. Three days and it should be ready for use. Fat chance. I waited over a month and it still wasn't dry. I couldn't go on alms run. I couldn't go anywhere. During meditation, thoughts of concern for the bowl would arise. <laughs> I spent my whole time lifting the basket up and down that well to check on whether the varnish was dry. I really suffered. In the end, I realized that even if I left it in the water for a year, it probably wouldn't work. So I asked the layman to bring some paper to wrap around the outside of the bowl. Then at least I could go on alms around. I was afraid of the common consequences of asking the lay people for a new one. I just endured. And there's a 
There's a section called Teachings from a Barking Deer. On a number of occasions referred to above, Lumpa's distinctive way of reflecting on Dhamma has been revealed. It consisted of a robust internal dialogue, a series of questions and answers, or a debate between two opposing viewpoints, took place in his mind until the truth was arrived at, some valuable lesson learned, some decision made. That skill was in evidence again, and probably saved his life in the heart of the mountains of Nakompano. Lumpa had not come across a village for a few days, and he was starting to become weak from lack of food. He felt tired and lightheaded. His legs were rubbery, climbing uphill, and his breath short. And then a fever struck. As he lay in the shade of a tree, too exhausted to move, he took stock of the situation. Little water, no sign of a village, and his body on fire. As Lumpa made peace with the realization that his chances of survival were low, a disturbing thought arose in his mind. Suppose a hunter should discover his corpse and send news back to Ubon. How distressing and inconvenient it would be for his family to have to come such a long way to arrange a funeral. He groped in his bag for his monk's identification booklet. If the worst came to the worst, he would burn it so nobody would ever know who he was. Just then, he was aroused from these somber thoughts by the sound of a barking deer echoing loudly through the forested valley below. It made him ask himself, Do barking deer and other creatures get ill? Yes, of course they do. They've got bodies just as we do. Do they have medicines? Do they have doctors who give them injections? No, of course not. They make do with whatever shoots and leaves they can find. Creatures in the wild don't have medicines. They have no doctors to look after them. And yet they don't seem to die out. The forest is full of them, and they're young, isn't it? Yes, it's true. These simple thoughts were enough to shake Lumpaw out of the despair that was enveloping his mind. He struggled up into a sitting position and forced himself to sip some water. He crossed his legs and started to meditate. By morning, the fever had abated. So, So, well, we've been sitting for over an hour. So it might be nice to maybe go and do some walking meditation. Uh, Walking meditation. Yeah, for say in half an hour and then um, and then come back about quarter to eleven we'll come back and sit for another little bit
entire building feels like what this room feels like. It's very special. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to give you some instructions for the following ceremony, which is the lunch ceremony. And for those of you who are new, um, if you have never done this ceremony, please just uh, listen. And there are folks in the lobby who will support you again, just in case you don't catch a piece of it. The folks who are offering lunch to the monks today uh, will leave the room once I'm finished. All offerings should be unwrapped, labeled with allergens and pre-sliced so that um, someone can take a small piece easily. Anyone touching food today, we're inviting you to wash your hands before you do so. Before uh, we can serve the food, you're going to offer the food. So we ask that you stand by the dish that you brought and it's going to take a few people to possibly even be stacked up one behind the other. So be mindful that someone whose little dish might be right next to your bigger dish. But basically, you put your hand on the plate. As the monk comes by, you lift the plate. They touch it. You can put it down, step away, and they will go to the next plate. Does that make sense? Yes? Good. Are we refraining from eating after 12 noon today in support of your food schedule? Well, 12 noon is 1 o'clock. Okay. Are we doing okay? <laughs> Daylight savings time. That's the delight. <clears throat> so refrain from eating it? Yeah, I mean, one? if it could, yeah, it won't kill anybody. <laughs> the, I, may, uh, yeah. I may have thrown that piece of the day in there, but so we're going to refrain <clears throat> from eating after 1 o'clock. So please, if you have made an offering of food, come back to the food table and clean up all of your. Um, your, your dishes and wrap them up and I have some plastic wrap that'll help with you, all of that but make sure to do that before you come back into the hall yes okay pretty good great. yeah great <laughs> great I'll uh, <clears throat> I'll give people a few free a few reflections well, yeah, and I'm going to take notes on those tips <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah yeah just to uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah there's the meal offering and and uh, as uh, said, we rely on the generosity of the of the lay community for everything: um, to daily sustenance, robes, um, our shelter, medicine for when we're sick. Those are the basic basic requisites. So that, but uh, on a daily basis, then we uh, rely on the uh, on the meal offerings, and uh, um, this is. Uh, Normally, we would uh, say in Thailand how the monastics would live would be going with our alms bowls and uh, receiving food in the villages and and uh, being offered food uh, and then going back and sharing it. And here uh, today, then people have brought food uh, and uh, they can make a, a formal offering of it. And as, uh, as Christina was was mentioning, and uh, so the monks will will go out and they'll prepare their alms bowls, and a few of the monks will come down and begin to receive the food, and then when uh, food has all been formally offered, then the monastics will come with their alms bowls. We'll put them in, put the food into our alms bowls, whatever we need for the day. And then we'll offer a blessing. And so this sort of uh, gratitude, the blessing is a 
acknowledgement of the generosity and the the wish that uh, uh, that uh, those who have made offerings have uh, will experience long life, happiness, uh, well-being. Uh, it's a uh, uh, ancient chant, uh, but it uh, is a. Uh, it's also, to me, it's also interesting of the. Um, causal principles that the Buddha laid down like, uh, as a foundation of his teaching that there's there's uh, there's action there's a result and so that the the action is generosity and uh, the, that that action it isn't sort of through it isn't through, it isn't just because the monks say may you be happy and well it's because you were generous <laughs> That these these results come about. It's the monks acknowledging, oh, this is wonderful that people are generous and share, and and that that results in 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 uh, in these these good things that support a happy life. So it's that that is what will take place. Um, the uh, I think also the 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 recognition one of the things I thought it tells a story is when Ajahn Chah first went to the west to England that was the first place that he went <coughs> and uh, he had the uh, had the monks go on alms um, and introduced it and said this is what you should do on a regular basis and he said well you know so there's a lot of doubt you know what What's the point? Nobody knows what the heck we're doing, and and um, nobody's, you know, are they going to give us anything? And and for the most part, they didn't. Uh, but he said, "You're not going for the food; you're going for the people." And that's and that's you, that's it's important because that's is one of the the uh, um, how do you say? You reflect on the the story of the Buddha. Um, the, uh, see, the, the 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 things that the Buddha saw that precipitated his his leaving the home and and seeking uh, awakening uh, were what are called uh, uh, the, uh, um, the, uh, the heavenly messengers, devadutas, and aging, sickness, death, and the sight of a religious seeker. So that's a, it's an important thing to bring into the world, and I think particularly into this culture, the sight of a religious seeker that that we're uh, that there is this opportunity, and and and, and that's also in terms of the uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, a a symbiotic relationship of the the monastic and the lay community, um, de- depending on each other and and supporting each other. So those who have offerings can go and prepare them and the monastics can go and get things set up. We'll get our bowls together and then whenever the the offerings have been are ready, then the monastics will will uh, will are you guys got got figured out?
Okay, welcome back everybody. Um, bit of a break. And uh, open up our afternoon reflections. Uh, the uh, the day is, uh, um, of course it's a recollection of Ajahn Chah and it is getting close to on June 17th will be the 100th anniversary of his birth. And so that uh, that was the um, the um, the impetus that that uh, that finally got this book done. Uh, sort of like okay, uh, there's this is coming up, but we have to have something. Uh, you better get get it together. <coughs> and uh, and uh, so I joined uh, Jayasaro a lot of work into um, bringing this book together to of Ajahn Chah's life and uh, you know, reflecting on it Ajahn this is the 100th anniversary of his birth but uh, his <coughs> uh, teaching has affected so many people uh, over such a uh, period of time, and it is quite amazing to think that Ajahn Chah hasn't taught um, physically you know, in terms of uh, uh, since about 1983 or something. Uh, that was when uh, he became. I mean, his, his health went downhill very quickly over a period of. Uh, two or three years, and uh, then he was um, yeah, completely debilitated, lost his ability to uh, his mo- uh, uh, motor uh, capabilities, his speech, and uh, so he was about 63, 64, something like that, when he stopped teaching, which I mean, I look at myself, and I look around the room, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's a few of us who are over that age. <laughs> so that, uh, or even those who are getting close. You know, well, he accomplished such a lot in, in, uh, in a quite a short period of time, really. Uh, and there's lasting, lasting benefit uh, to so many people. So there's something <coughs> really... Uh, special about that, and of course he was ill for uh, about uh, about nine years, ten years, uh, bedridden, looked after by the by the community, uh, and, uh, and then he passed away in uh, 1992. So that uh, even though he he didn't have a uh, uh, say a, a long life, he had an impactful life. And, and I think that that is <coughs> something that is is uh, um, you know he w- he would be he would be happy knowing he had the impact rather than knowing that he was able to live for a long time. I think uh, that was that was really his commitment to was to his own 
practice and for the benefit of others. And so that that, uh, that was something that uh, was quite um, apparent uh, to me in my early experience of going to, to Ajahn Chah's monastery. Um, I showed up at Ajahn Chah's monastery in uh, oh, probably January 1974. And uh, I'd already ordained as a monk. I uh, had no clue what I was doing. Um, did not uh, I just uh, uh, I was studying and meditating a little bit and uh, at a monastery and they said why don't you ordain and I said I could never do that and they said why not and I said well I couldn't live like that for the rest of my life (laughs) and and then they said, well, no, it's ordinary in Thailand to take a temporary ordination. Three months, four months. So I said, three or four months, I could do that. <laughs> so that was 44 years later. <laughs> and, uh, um, but it was uh, showing up at, uh, and, uh, and I kept hearing about Ajahn Chah. And the place that I ordained, I, I asked the, the teacher there, and he said, oh, you should go pay respects to Ajahn Chah. A very good teacher. Uh, so um, I took his advice. And um, when I arrived, then uh, there, were, there were a few Westerners there already, um, but there wasn't a, a large number, and it was a but it was a large community of uh, with Thai monks um, and and a large community of Thai nuns there, which we had no contact at all. Um, and but the uh, uh, it was a very vibrant community, and then going to meet Ajahn Chah. And oftentimes people ask, oh, what was it like living with Ajahn Chah? You know, sort of, and just kind of like, oh, you're so lucky. Um, and, uh, and it's true, I was lucky. Uh, but, uh, you know, it just depends. I mean, he could be charismatic, inspiring. He could be irritating and frustrating. He could be, um, you know, very uh, gentle and and sensitive, and he could just hit you over the head with with directness, and and you're like I didn't need that, but you know he would he'd do it, and uh, so that uh, and you you had to be willing to 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 be with that, to stay with that, and. Uh, but uh, you know, I think one of the things that that uh, uh, those of us who did um, live with him, train with him, um, you know, we we certainly recognized all those various qualities. Uh, but one of the qualities that was 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 very consistent was you felt like this was a really trustworthy being as a as a human being 
this is a, somebody you could give your trust to. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what we did. And, and he wanted us to, to practice. I remember one time where he, he was really hard on me for, I don't know, it was over a year. You know, just like, you know, I was consistent. He was really, he was really hard on me. And, uh, uh, and then after a time, I, 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 I mean, of course, I'm practicing, working with it, and studying, and really trying to give myself to the practice. And then, uh, you know, slowly realize, oh, oh, you know, what he really wants me to do is just, what I, and what I have to do is, is really the, the whole essence of this practice and of his teaching is around relinquishment and, 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 and that, uh, that letting go. And really being willing to relinquish, willing to let go, let go of one's preferences, let go of one's attachments, let go of one's self-view, just be willing to let go of everything, and and so that, and I remember going to him one day and saying, you know, I think I've understood what you want me to do, and I think I'm ready to uh, to uh, uh, you say um, be on your on your good side again, <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, and he 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 just uh, he looked at, over at me with this really sly kind of smile, and he said, "You give up." <laughs> it was, and it was, I give up. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was really. It was, you sort of really cherished that 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 uh, that thought, and. Uh, Again, you know, people ask you, oh, you know, it was so wonderful. Yeah, well, sometimes it was wonderful, <laughs> but sometimes it wasn't. And <clears throat> but one had to be willing to uh, give oneself to the Dhamma. And he was somebody who drew that out of people. And that's not just the, the monastic community, the monks and nuns that lived with him, but the lay community also. It was the lay community was very devoted, very dedicated to to practice, to training. And uh, my own experience of going to, to uh, my first experience of going to, to visit Ajahn Chah's monastery and that uh, impression of... Um, there was... The, the, uh, we'd have the lunar observances once a week where practicing meditation, listening to, to the lay people come listen to a, a Dhamma talk in the morning. They'd spend the day practicing, reading. Uh, then the evening time would come and, and people would uh, come together for chanting and meditation, listening to Dhamma. And it would go through to the next morning for morning chanting and then they would go home. And and I was you know I had I hardly knew how to meditate, and 
And it was incredibly inspiring to see the, the lay community sitting up, practicing, and, and uh, uh, just uh, solid. Uh, so, many, so many of them, just solid, sitting meditation, practicing. And uh, you know, I remember the the because uh, uh, I, I know witnessed that, and then there was a a full moon observance that came up, which was in Thailand. There's three big days that are on full moon. Three big, three full moons that are really special. Uh, so in February, there's a full moon of February, and that's the one I was at. Um, there's one in a couple of days. It'll be the full moon of May, which is the Visakha Puja, the the recollection of the Buddha's enlightenment, his uh, his birth, his enlightenment, his passing away, um, and then the in July, the full moon of July, it's a recollection of the Buddha's first teaching. The uh, <coughs> the full moon of February is a uh, full moon recollecting the. Uh, Sangha and the, the the community, and um, in those days, all of the uh, branch monasteries of Ajahn Chah, which already he already had a dozen or more, fifteen, something like that, uh, and uh, and then the lay people from those communities, the lay people all around, and uh, and it would be extremely simple ceremony. I mean, just not so different than what we'd normally do in terms of chanting, meditation, and, and dhamma talks. But uh, there would be a, a candlelight procession and uh, with, uh, in the monastery, and it would be the silent vi- uh, procession with everyone with candles and flowers and incense. And it was just extremely beautiful, very moving. And uh, very very simple, just circumambulating the the the, uh, the the Buddha Hall or in Thailand whatever shrine is 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 there. So there's a, you know, this simplicity, uh, but a certain power there. And Ajahn Chah was was kind of the focal point, who drew people to him, uh, inspired them to. To, to practice and inspired them to really give themselves to practice and that's you know, whether they were monastics or lay people and uh, it's when like, even now uh, that legacy still continues uh, so that uh, <coughs> I was just there in January um, June is 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 birthday. January is when he passed away. Janu- the January was the big celebration for the hundredth year because June is just climate-wise it's terrible to, to, to get together with so many people. January it's, it's drier, it's cooler, and there's more water. So it's just practical to do it in January. And they've been doing a January session every year and uh, so I, I took a, a contingent of our community to Thailand this year to be there and witness that and uh, 
uh, again, a sense of uh, Ajahn Chah's teaching and example is still reaching people, and and the uh, um, they do dhamma practice, um, dhamma meditation, chanting, dhamma teachings through the day for about seven days, up to the the uh, uh, the day and. Uh, people come from all over there was just living in the monastery uh, I think it was 3,000 monks two, 3,000 monks just in the monastery uh, about six, 7,000 lay people living in the monastery you know, just uh, underneath uh, uh, and nobody got out their own room. <laughs> you camped out under the under the trees, and, you know, kind of tent by tent, tent, and uh, but uh, uh, but they've uh, um, and people, you know, it was. Thousands of people chanting together. The feeling of it was 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 amazing. And then uh, the day of the circumambulation, there was something like fifteen thousand people just doing the circumambulation. So it's quite quite uh, moving to to be amongst that. And and then pe- and, uh, people listening to the teachings and sitting in the hall. And of course, in Thailand, there. Are, up to speed with the technology, so that there's there's actually nowadays because there's so many people they've got they got flat screens all through the forest, <laughs> and, and and you know watching the, the joining the chanting and the teachings and 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 then out to the uh, the uh, uh, the shrine agent there's a shrine for agent Cha and they, Edge of the monastery, and that uh, that was uh, people meditating and listening to teachings out there. So it's just the sense of the uh, legacy being being continued, and people giving themselves, and the effect uh, arising from one person who really determined to 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 put their heart into the practice. And so it's something that uh, very. Uh, worthy of, of of reflection, and that uh, and you know we're <coughs> we're all capable of of putting effort into the into the practice ourselves, and it's not not, uh, not beyond anybody's reach. It's so easy to sort of think, oh, I can't do it, or come up with a list of why I can't do it, and what I need to do before I can do it. And, so I just yeah, you see, we can. That was something that Ajahn Chah said. Yeah, you can. You can do this. Everybody can do this. I mean, inspired people. And of course, one of the the things that uh, in his teaching um, would put um, a lot of. One of the things that Ajahn Chah's teachings would oftentimes circle around is the laying the foundation for um, uh, right view and 
sila, integrity, and just having that virtue, virtue and integrity, and uh, and and right view, and so that 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 his teachings would circle around around that whether it was encouraging people in in different ways or encouraging them in meditation or in the in the uh, sort of the philosophy of Buddhism, but the uh, uh, that sense of of uh, uh, of right view and 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 integrity are such a, uh, themes that were always repeated uh, in Ajahn Chah's teachings. Um, of course, one of the uh, foundations in in Buddhism, and Ajahn Chah would would put. Uh, a lot of emphasis on is in the, is the faith in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And you think, well, you know, that's pretty ordinary in a Buddhist culture. But it also, uh, you know, for say for us as Westerners, we're, we're not familiar with Buddhism, we're not familiar with even Triple Gem, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, what's that mean? But, and so we have to learn about it. But then, even in traditional Buddhist culture, what is the, the traditional refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha can get really obscured in uh, custom and tradition, um, the animistic beliefs, um, all sorts of other uh, accretions that, that, that uh, glom on to any religion, uh, and, and just being able for Ajahn Chah to be uh, teaching those fundamentals, those foundations. Of what what's what is it that's really important to have faith in? What do we put our faith in? And where do we put our? Where do, what do we ground our our, our our sense of devotion to? So that the these these refuges and these go way back to the to the the earliest days of of the Buddhist teaching, and, uh, and of course to. Um, uh, to reflect on that is really important. Ajahn Chah was, of course, would always bring that to people's consciousness. So I just wanted to do a short reading on uh, that uh, aspect. Uh, throughout his teaching career, Lumpa sought to encourage lay Buddhists to go beyond a merely superficial affiliation with the religion expressed in material support for the monastic order and ritual observances. His concern was that they should learn how to use the Buddha's teachings to reduce suffering and increase the quality of their lives. He did this by bringing the teachings down to earth, expressing them in the vernacular and revealing them as tools to be used in daily life rather than as objects of reverence. This strategy is clearly revealed in the way that Lumpa spoke about the three refuges. He emphasized that Buddha does not only refer to the founder of the religion who, some 2,500 years ago, lived in India, as it was his realization of the Dhamma that transformed Siddhartha Gautama into the Buddha, his Buddha nature and the Dhamma were one and the same thing. That's a quote. When you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha and all your doubts vanish. The Buddha is the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the Buddha. The historical Buddha did not take enlightenment with him. He left it right here. 
Therefore, as the Dhamma is timeless, Lumpur insisted it is still as accessible to one who follows the Buddha's teachings as it, as it ever was. And again, a quote, the Buddha is still present today. The Buddha is the truth. Truth is always present. No matter who is born and who dies, the truth remains the same. It never disappears from the world. It's always here in exactly this way. Seeking to express this idea to a group of teachers, he drew an analogy. There is a body of knowledge and skills that, once mastered, allows people to make a living as a teacher. People become teachers for a number of years and then retire. But the knowledge and skills that made them teachers remains. It's a quote again. Similarly, the truth that makes a human being a Buddha still exists. It hasn't disappeared. Two Buddhas are born. One is physical and the other immaterial. As for the true Dhamma, the Buddha said, Ananda, keep practicing. You will thrive in this Dhamma of Inia. Whoever sees the Dhamma sees me. Whoever sees me sees the Dhamma. How could that be? It sounds as if the Buddha and Dhamma are being mixed up and made into the same thing. Actually, to begin with, there was no Buddha. The Buddha could only be called by the name of Buddha when he realized the Dhamma. Before that, he was Prince Siddhartha. It's like all of you. Now you're just unenlightened village folk. But if you were to realize the true Dhamma, then you'd be exactly the same as the Buddha. There would be no difference. So, understand this point, all of you. Right now, the Buddha is still present. Lumpur found the belief originating in scholarly circles that it is no longer possible in the present day and age to realize enlightenment to be a pernicious one. He spoke grimly of the kamma created by scholars who criticized those putting effort into practice of the teachings as wasting their time. He considered the holders of such a view, such a view like fools who conclude that because they can see no water beneath their feet that there can be none beneath the earth they stand on. And Paul gives this quote again, which I mentioned. To put it simply, practice is like digging a well. In the Buddha's time, they dug down into the earth in order to find water. When they met roots and rocks, they removed them, and eventually they reached water. There was no need to create the water. All they had to do was dig the well to access it. In the present day, you can dig a well in order to get water in exactly the same way. Whenever you get down to the water-bearing strata, you'll find water. And I mentioned how important the importance that Ajahn Chah put on the um, uh, right view. And uh, actually, before I I uh, uh, go on with this, I just to. Um, I was going to mention it right at the beginning and forgot. I was going to do it the first thing in the morning and I forgot. Uh, but uh, the uh, um, 
the books uh, that uh, are out there. Um, the there's a uh, on our website, the Abhayagiri website. Then there's the digital versions of the of the of the books, um, and uh, and of course of all of the publications. So in PDF in Mobi and EPUB, uh, you can ask whatever your preference is, uh, and uh, but also importantly on uh, Ajahn Chah's birthday, uh, there should be. I haven't heard anything uh, uh, to the opposite. There should be an audio version of that book appearing, and uh, it was. Uh, it was the all of the recording was actually done at a Giri this past summer. Um, one of the uh, uh, the monks was staying with us. Ajahn um, Panyo is a wonderful BBC English uh, voice, a good speaking voice, good articulation, and he we set up a, the dwelling place that we had him set up in had a fixed up a little sound studio uh, for for that. And so all of that's done there and was going to be done, uh, released all at the same time uh, in uh, in January. And, um, and of course, it didn't happen. Um, but uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that that's going to, uh, going to take... The, the, so the goal was to have it out on the on June seventeenth, so for those who are interested, then uh, uh, check in on that. And that that's an uh, audio version of, the, of this whole whole book. It'll be a nice way to to access it as well. So the uh, next little teaching I wanted. To point to is the uh, is how again how Ajahn Chai emphasizes right view um, importance of cultivation and it begins with a quote we're like the chi- <clears throat> we're like a chicken that's all the chicken's born has chicks and spends its day scratching around in the dirt and then in the evening it goes to sleep in the morning. It jump, jumps down to the ground and starts scratching around again. Cuck, cuck, cuck. <laughs> and then in the evening, it goes to sleep again. Is there any point to it? No. We're like chickens, like creatures with no wisdom. The owner comes every day with food. He takes hold of the chicken, lifts it up in his arms to look at it. Chicken thinks the owner is being affectionate. As for the owner, he's thinking, hmm... It's getting heavy. How much does it weigh? Is it up to two or three kilos yet? Chicken doesn't know what's going on. The owner brings it rice to eat, and it's happy. It thinks the owner loves it. It eats it all up, gets fat, and thinks it's got it made. But as soon as the chicken weighs two or three kilos, that's it. Off to the market. That's how most people lead their lives. They don't see the danger. They're deluded, just like the chicken. The owner takes the chicken off to the market. It's in the back of the truck and it's still clucking, having a great time. 
Then the car reaches the market. The owner sells the chicken to a Chinese stall owner. The chicken still doesn't suspect anything. <laughs> Chinese guy tears the feathers off its neck and the chicken thinks the guy is grooming it. The chicken is that stupid. It's only when the knife has cut its throat that the chicken realizes, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> we don't see our own life. We don't know how to remedy our defilements. <laughs> From the moment that he established Wat Papong, Lumpur began teaching his lay disciples that their responsibilities weren't confined to offering food to the Sangha and making merit. Dhamma isn't something far away, he'd say. It's not something belonging to the monks. Dhamma is the truth of all living things, and the freedom from suffering is possible for anybody, monastic or lay, who cultivates the Eightfold Path. And it's a quote. Everyone, monastics and lay Buddhists, have an equal opportunity to practice Dhamma and to reflect on it. And the Dhamma which monastics and lay meditators reflect on is the same Dhamma and leads to the same peace by the same means. Practicing Dhamma was the way to make the best possible use of a human birth that was rare and precious. He said that procrastinating about the effort to cultivate one's mind and then lamenting about it when you were already old and approaching death was like being an incompetent gardener. It's a quote. You plant beans, melons, pumpkins, green beans, and so on. Once they grow up, they mature, and then they go rotten. Knowing that, you pick them before that happens, don't you? If you want to cook and eat them, or sell or barter them, so that you derive some benefit from them, then do it in a timely way. What's the use of sitting around lamenting when they have gone rotten? On her retirement, Upasika Rangjuan, a highly regarded author and civil servant, left the lay life and went to live in the nun's community of Wat Papong. Later, she went on to become a widely respected Dhamma teacher. Her life changed direction after listening to the teachings of Lumpa. This is a quote from, from Ajahn Rangjuan. Like most Buddhists, I'd make merit listen to Dhamma talks, put food in the monks' bowls, take the precepts, and all those kinds of things, and I thought that was enough. I never considered that anything more was required to be a true Buddhist. Then I heard Lumpur give a Dhamma talk for the first time, and I realized that the most important thing that a Buddhist should do is to train his or her mind, and that to do so would be, would be fulfilling the deepest wish of the Buddha. I'll open it up for questions. No questions? So along these lines, uh, uh, last night I was just reading in your island book uh, and came across a section talking about uh, the tenfold path. 
and wonder if you could speak a little bit about the last two parts of that. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think the like eightfold path uh, is generally sort of seen as the the path of practice and is a path of practice. But then uh, the Buddha also pointing to well, there's the right results of that path and where we want to take that path uh, to lead. So the the, the last two steps uh, of that of that path, say beginning at right view, right concentration, but then right knowledge. Uh, and right liberation, and 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 that uh, I think it's really helpful to be be uh, considering in the sense that because you know, there's all sorts of things that we can know and understand in the Buddha's teachings uh, or and any kind of practice, but is it actually beneficial? And the Buddha kept emphasizing uh, over and over again that uh, this path. Is for I teach only two things: suffering, end of suffering, dukkha, and cessation of dukkha, sort of stress and the end of stress. And so those are so whatever knowledge that we gain, and even whatever liberation we mutti, whatever freedom we gain, uh, should also be be reflected on in terms of is it in line with that freedom from 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 suffering from discontent dissatisfaction dis-ease because we can gain knowledge and it uh, even uh, the heart gets freed and becomes very spacious and we can still make a problem with that <laughs> you know we're we're incredibly adept at, at doing that uh, so that being able to 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 really keep Keep reflecting, keep keep challenging ourselves, so that we we really come to a place of that yeah, right knowledge, right liberation. At these uh, celebrations, are there a lot of like little kids and family members, and with that, like. I see my girls growing up, they're seven and eight, and they drive me crazy, and I'm like, meditate with daddy, or, you know, how do I bring about that, <laughs> that practice? Because, you know, they know when the door's closed, daddy's meditating. But, so I'm setting an example, but at the same time, I want them to. I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, get away from this technology, yeah. these things. So I'm, I'm just kind of like, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, the, the uh, uh, traditionally, uh, say a, a monastery is a place where basically everybody goes. Um, kids go there, uh, and say like in a th- in Thai culture, then I mean it's not just a it's like a, this uh, holy sanctuary that nobody goes in unless you're ready to be enlightened. Um, it's it's you know where kids go to play, and and uh, and it's where. Kids go to learn learn something more about themselves or about the you know, the, the tradition, or so it's it's and it's quite organic, um, and uh, so that uh, um, yeah, certainly as a, a traditional monastery, then that's something that that uh, um, you know we're a bit far away from from. Uh, um, say the local village, but 
people people come to the monastery for, for and different age groups. Uh, that's one of the things where we're, we just completed a new building project. And one of the things we we included in the in the in the in the project was a children's room, uh, so that kids can come or parents can come bring their kids, and so that it's. Uh, and I really rejoice when I see kids come to the monastery because it then to me it's it's like it's to, like a monastery and a dhamma center, a place of the Buddha's teachings isn't really complete until. It, it reaches all those, you know, from the time you're, you're a child to the time you're doing the funeral rites for somebody, and that that's uh, you know. So I see it as really, really important. So, and obviously, some people are are and some teachers or some monasteries are way more skilled at at, uh, at dealing with children, uh, and uh, you know, for uh, you know. Some it's sort of you know they're just weird little human beings. They look, you know, they look like they should be human, but then you know all of kind of the smaller scale something. Um, but many are really skilled at, at, at uh, um, teaching and leading. And I'll say like uh, one of our monasteries in in Thailand. Uh, he, he's been been doing the abbot, and he's got the support of many other teachers. And they they do a, a regular program of of the children um, um, coming and and living in the monastery through the year, and then uh, doing ordinations uh, in the hot season. Um, um, everything is still so sort of new and fresh in in America that it's, you know just putting the roots down. And uh, but you know certainly as a you know see a, 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 I'd love to see that that uh, that happen and and you know certainly Abhayagiri is there and at, and at uh, the. Uh, uh, the easiest thing you can do is take them out on the trails and wear them out. You know, <laughs> take them out in nature, and and yeah, there's no cell signals. <laughs> there's back there and up here as well. I'll get you, get you next. So are you inviting us to the birthday party on June 17th at Abayagiri? Uh, June 17th, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anybody, that's the thing with monasteries. You don't, you don't even need an invitation. You just go. <laughs> it's my birthday, too. It's your birthday, too. Oh, really? That's special. Yeah, okay. I'll see you then. Yeah, okay, Thank very you. good, very good. Sasan, okay. I was just wondering if you could say more about um, Anjan Shah's irritability. You know, <laughs> well, not so much irritability, but I mean, he was—he uh, could be ferocious, uh, and he, uh, uh, you know, he didn't. You know, if you weren't, uh, um, uh, you know, if you were being sloppy or heedless. 
he had no problem in letting you know that. Uh, so that that uh, well, you know he didn't in a sense of irritability he didn't like to see see people and particularly monastics wasting their opportunity and wasting time and wasting other people's opportunities in a sense of you know this is you know this is not a game uh, get to it don't, don't mess about so he could you know he could be he could push you yeah, he could be fierce. <laughs> it's back there, and there's one back there. Ah, go ahead. You're right at hand. <laughs> go ahead. Um, this is maybe more a comment than a question, but I, um, and in a way it's a kind of a plug for the book. Um, I received a copy of it in February, and um, I... I found reading it just an amazing journey into not just learning about Ajahn Shah's life, but it, it because it, it contains so much, so many of the teachings and reflections. Um, it was almost it was somewhat of a meditative experience itself, and touching these teachings that have meant so much to me, but bringing them into a sense of, of rootedness and depth and complexity and liveliness and variation. And it, I, I just would really recommend it um, as something much more than just a biography. It's yeah. so much gratitude to everyone who did the work to bring it around. Yeah, thank you. Because that, that's certainly what... Uh uh, Ajahn Jayasara wanted to accomplish because uh, that's uh, just a, like a story about Ajahn Chah's life is not would not be really complete but having something that encouraged people to practice and understand what that practice has the possibilities of that, that uh, Oh, there you are. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's there's tremendous value in having a teacher that can kind of remind you or impose that urgency of, of practice. And as a layperson, you know, who doesn't have that resource, um, what strategies would you use to kind of call the urgency back in, you know, not get distracted and feel like you have, you know, forever? Well, I think, that, again, that's having resources like this is really, really important. Or going back to the, the, the Buddha's own teachings and, and trying to... And sometimes it's a bit daunting because you look at the scriptures and sort of like this whole wall of books. But the, the, some of the anthologies that, that distill the, the, uh, uh, the teachings and, and uh, getting a, f- a flavor for the... Uh, the Buddha's Buddha's own words is I think is important and, and yeah there's there's some great uh, uh, collections of 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 teachings that that uh, um, you know we have access to now that's one of the great 
things about being born at this time. You think, okay, there is all these distractions and there's kind of internet and cat memes and you know, <laughs> you know and it's all very fascinating. But <laughs> but <laughs> there's all in in amongst that is is all are are, are many teachings of of, of of good teachers that that are really encouraging us to to practice and so it's still it's still accessible and then picking it up and and uh, and not just reading it but the, you know the the uh, you know there are all sorts of audio available and so yeah i just um giving oneself the the encouragement to keep setting up a, a, a like a discipline for oneself i guess sometimes it's helpful to to set up time times for oneself to Okay, and 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 not in a really rigid way, in the sense of uh, and setting at the bar so high that you know it's like New Year's New Year's resolutions where you ninety nine percent of all New Year's resolutions never you know they're they're gone by the board in the first week, um, but setting 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 it as a, so that it encourages oneself in increments and you gain more confidence in yourself and your and those things that you're. You aspire towards. It's like feeding and nurturing that that aspiration. There we go. Referring to the inner coach or the inner voice, um, how? What advice would you give in distinguishing between ferocious wisdom? That's redirecting you back to the path, and the inner critic, yeah. that's just telling you that you suck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. It, well, it has a different tone, you know, in in the sense that you know, and if you, that's what you have to pay attention to, is that 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 that, that inner tone, because sometimes you 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 yeah you just. There's that voice that sort of, yeah, you can do more, you, but you feel bad. And whereas when there's a, there's another voice that we can usher up and, and say, yeah, you can do better, and you feel good. Uh, and and you have to learn how to trust that tone. And and when it's when it's that inner critic, the, the inner tyrant, just uh, hectoring you. Um, then uh, you have to learn how to to, uh, to disregard that and and to to sort of or to to treat it as some uh, you know poor demented kind of little pet you know that <laughs> doesn't know better <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, but it, it, but there's there's a different. You can feel the you feel the difference, and so paying attention to what is it that elicits those those, those wholesome qualities of mind, wholesome aspirations, and what is it that keeps us sort of uh, negative uh, and and sort of unskillful, uh, not bright, 
Uh, that's one of the aspects of, of uh, you know, when the, the Buddha points to, you know, what is progress and what is on the path and what is when we're not progressing on the path. It's always around wholesome inner qualities, wholesome mental qualities, so that when those wholesome qualities increase and the unwholesome, the unskillful, the negative decrease, then okay, that, that's what actual progression is, even if we've got some other preconceived idea of it or some... some uh, but also just learning how to not trust one's mind as well. So I remember Ajahn Chah one time, he says, oh, you know, the, you know, the fastest way in practice uh, to get anywhere is to l- just l- look at the mind and as soon as something, you know, another thought comes up, it's, it's point at you, liar. <laughs> it's liar. <laughs> you know? And, you know, so much of it is, is just this, you know, kind of crap that we spin out all over and over. It's just amazing. But and to be willing to sort of say, no, no, that's really, you know, that, that's really not true. And, we, you know, we, we say, you know, say stuff of ourselves or we, 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 have, we sort of you know, say our kind of rundown of what the situation and other people are and it's just this sort of you know, you keep coming up with how uh, poorly it is or bad it is, and you say, "No, it's not really not skillful. It's not worth it. It's not worth investing in that." It's just a no. yeah, liar. Son. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it is. Thanks. I wanted to uh, say how much I appreciate hearing um, about, uh, well, first, Ajahn Chah's description of teaching lay and monastics. Um, and the description of <laughs> the enormous um, practicing of lay and and monastics, I mean, that's just phenomenal, you know, thousands in the, yeah. in the monastery, wow. And um, what it left me feeling is um, much more comfortable to be lay, <laughs> you know, um, out of vast insecurity and self-judgment um, for the worst. Yeah, I have tried so hard to be perfect, <laughs> spiritually perfect, which is really hard. And um, just listening, it was very, very um, comforting. You know, but it took me to a place of um, feeling more comfortable um, with the differentiation between aspiring and being so driven and um, so much grinding of the gears of evaluation over and over and here and there and round and round you know now we'll see how long it lasts but you know thank you so very much okay great yeah I think that's uh, uh, it's an important piece to take away because uh, um, uh, 
think Westerners in general, Americans in particular, very ideal driven. Take it to just like it's you take it to the most ideal, idealize it, idealization. Take it to the logical endpoint, and for certainly for ties, then it's just it's more about how you feel. So learning because our minds can conceive of so much of what we think we should do, should become, how the world should be, and and yeah, and in an ideal world that'd be great. But I don't know. I don't know what sort of ideal world we're ever going to live in. And just learning how to to come back to the practicality of okay, this is a teaching that we can. Uh, get our hands around. We can give ourselves to it, and we can can uh, can experience a, a a real release of of, of suffering and dis, dis, discontent, dissatisfaction. Yeah. One more question. Two more questions. Thank okay. You. Um, Years ago, I did Upandita's last uh, retreat in the United States before he passed. And I had the opportunity to drive one of the monks to the airport. He wasn't teaching there. He was attending. And he, I asked him to compare um, the Burmese traditions and teaching with uh, Thai. And um, what he said, if I'm remembering correctly, was that he said that, the, that in Thailand in general, he felt that the, I think his phrase was, the sila had slipped. And they were accepting, um, you know, bribe, I mean, the monasteries, were, there, there was some corruption he was implying. Mm-hmm. But then he said Ajahn Chah came along and kind of ch- raised the bar, basically. And, uh, and then he went along praising Ajahn Chah as the Thai person that really kind of raised the whole level in Thailand. Mm-hmm. So for the years since he said that, I've been wondering... Is that characterization true? Is that just his, you know? Um, so anything you can say about that, I'd be curious. Thank you. Um, yes and no. Uh, in the sense that uh, uh, Ajahn Chah was part of a movement. Uh, the forest tradition from the northeast of Thailand has raised the bar. Uh, but that's how, you know, uh, it, I think that's one of the beauties of the Buddhist teachings, is that he he sow, he sown the seeds within the teaching of its own regeneration, if people pick it up and practice it. So that uh, you know, I think that happened uh, in the and it happened in history over time, uh, many times, and then. Uh, uh, it certainly happened in the um, the forest tradition of Ajahn Man and many other teachers and those inspired by him and then Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was probably one of the more well-known because, I say, outside of Thailand because of uh, his teachings being available in English, uh, more so than many of the other great teachers. But, but Ajahn Chah is also universally uh, respected and, and loved in Thailand as well. Yeah, one more back there. Oh, um, 
So, you know, getting back to the, um, when, when um, he was making the lid for his bowl and, you know, how he just kind of um, stopped himself from thinking um, about working when he was resting or meditating. And uh, so, you know, I hear that fierceness in him. But also, you know, like Ajahn Chah to me also is like very allowing too about different mind states. This is what I understand too. So I was just wondering about like how that maybe flowed for him. Well, I, yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, part of his, his approach was uh, that we see is through his kind of willingness to question and, uh, and both in that sense of um, uh, the uh, uh, okay, sort of stopping his mind from going out or really training, but that's a process. I mean, it's it's easy to describe in a paragraph, but then you know, how long did he work with that? You know, years probably, uh, and so that 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 uh, that's an accumulation, and and then also him. The, that sense of of not taking it so seriously that that uh, uh, you know you again you have to be perfect um, so that he give himself a lot of space uh, and um, you know when something was intractable but he'd also challenge himself so it was you know there's a back and forth there that is is uh, you know, relies on uh, on patience, and and that was a, a huge part of his teaching. So often we would go to him and ask for, uh, you know, advice and and how to deal with certain situations, and hoping to get, you know, the one teaching with the magic bullet that would just do it, and and they just you know tell you to be patient. You know. You know, is be willing to be with it, to be present, to learn from it, uh, investigate it, understand it, so that it open up space around it. And we're not in the sense that he's condoning, but it's also, okay, give it some space and learn from it. What's it trying to tell you? What are you trying to get from it? Is it actually what it's, what it's, what, what it's saying about itself? And so the, those, are, those are ways that he would... He would oftentimes, oftentimes do that, and that that uh, that sense of of uh, yeah of, of uh, being willing to question, investigate, uh, and then to uh, um, also have a bit of of because uh, he also had a good sense of humor, and if you can't laugh at yourself um, as a practitioner, then you're sunk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because it's you know it's you know what our minds do to to us is absurd you know <laughs> and and oh yeah okay we need a bit of space around this and just to be able to 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 allow that and and uh, and work with it and um, I remember one time uh, being with with him. And uh, uh, being his attendant, we were at a small branch monastery, and uh, he was already having difficulty with his, his like with his balance. 
um, I mean, he ended up, he ended up, uh, you know, he had a, a, a brain disorder, and and uh, uh, and one of the things that it manifested early on was balance was difficult. So uh, it was a it was a place where the the road was a little bit rough. So he didn't feel confident going on alms around. Um, so that he stayed back, and then we uh, brought. It was a, a, quite a small village, so that we, they uh, uh, what we we bring back rice from the alms bowl, and then and we'd get, gather it together. And normally, what we do is take what is just needed for ourselves, and everything goes into sort of communal pile or pot. And then, so I brought that up for Ajahn Chah to so that he would have make a ball of rice for himself. Sticky rice, glutinous rice and sticky rice, that's the staple in the northeast of Thailand. So and, and he'd make a, a ball of rice and normally he would say, like, you know, you, you can't you shouldn't really be having more than this, if you whatever your hand is, you know, and that's a lot from anybody's standards. Uh, but uh, if you grow up in the northeast of Thailand and and, and uh, you're you, you Work hard, you no, know, it's that's pretty ordinary. But anyway, he uh, he's he's making this ball of rice, and so it starts off, and keeps adding on, and it gets, keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it's, it's about this big, and and he sort of weighs, lifts it up and down. He When I was younger, I used to be able to pack it. I'm getting old now. That <laughs> <laughs> so was a, a kind of was a, okay. Yeah, it's, it's not a big deal. <laughs> Let's have a break. We won't do. We've been hearing teachings. We've had some reflections. Let's do another. Uh, do a session. We've been sitting for over an hour. We don't do a. Walking meditation for half an hour, come back again for a sitting meditation.
Okay, so I wanted to um, just introduce people to Ajahn Chah's, some of Ajahn Chah's perspectives uh, on meditation and uh, the way that he approached meditation was was extremely practical uh, there's no such thing as the Ajahn Chah meditation technique it doesn't uh, doesn't exist and he would uh, he would encourage people to uh, use uh, whatever um, practice seemed to be helpful, work for them, uh, help support their mindfulness, help support their uh, reflective investigation. Um, when Ajahn Sumedho first arrived at Ajahn Chah's monastery, he has he was ordained as a monk. He had spent uh, over a year, just over a year, in a um, meditation monastery uh, that uh, followed a particular technique and uh, he didn't find the technique all that um, compelling or useful and he ended up um, doing a bit of study doing practice and did a lot of meditation and um, but then he also came across a, uh, a, a Mahayana technique in the uh, tradition of empty cloud. He's a uh, master suyun, and a lot of the questioning of uh, uh, a Huato method, a uh, almost sort of like a. a almost like a koan practice, but not quite. But anyway, he went to, uh, when he went to Ajahn Chah's monastery, he, he asked Ajahn Chah, and he was he was kind of afraid that, that uh, Ajahn Sumedha would, or Ajahn Chah would make him follow some particular method or some particular technique. And, and, uh, and so he asked him if it would be okay if he used this particular method that he'd been working with and Ajahn Chah just asked him, well, what do you, what is it, what are you doing? What's it, what's the, what do you, so he described it and he said, he described what he was doing and then, uh, and then Ajahn Chah just asked, you know, does it help you be mindful? Does it help you get more clarity? He said, yeah. He said, well, just go for it. <laughs> you know, so it's, it, it's, uh, Certainly, one of the aspects of Ajahn Chah's uh, approach was to to uh, look at it as a uh, a long term commitment to the to the training, um, and to uh, uh, and and to keep experimenting, keep keep uh, working with it. Um, there's a story that Jack Cornfield tells of the time when he was 
frustrated. I can't figure out what you're teaching because you, you know, sometimes you teach this, sometimes you teach that, and and Ajahn Chah just says, "Well, it's because I I just look at different people, and if I and I want them to walk. If you you want somebody to walk down the path, and you see somebody, you know." Oh, going off in the ditch on the right-hand side, and you say, go left, go left. And, then, and you see them going off, wandering off the, 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 the trail and going off in the ditch on the, on the left-hand side, and you say, go right, go right. And, and that, that's the... Uh, you know, so you're trying to get people to just practice this middle path, and, and we keep veering off to the, off to the side. So it's a, this encouragement of, um, you know, not... So much of a a a, 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 a commitment to the, the actual method, but commitment to training, commitment to to understanding. Um, so I do a, a reading here which is titled The Single Chair. Meditation practices that involve directing the thinking mind rather than turning away from it are based on the principle that sustaining an unbroken stream of awareness on a theme of contemplation instead of a physical sensation can also lead to a gathering of the mind's forces. This producer produces a rapture that takes the mind beyond the pull of worldly thoughts and desires to a samadhi that provides the platform for the profound work of wisdom. But whatever meditation practice was adopted, Lumpaw emphasized that mindfulness must play a central role. He compared watching the mind with mindfulness and alertness to a shopkeeper keeping a sharp eye on his goods when a group of mischievous children come into his shop. In another simile, he said that the mind is like a room with a single chair. When mindfulness sits firmly on that seat facing the door, then any guest entering the room is known immediately. Without a chair to sit on, no guest stays for long. Mindfulness, bolstered by confidence in the Buddha's path to liberation and by right effort, result in a samadhi that bore within it the seeds of wisdom and liberation. And this is a a quote. Mindfulness is the nurse and protector of samadhi. It is the dhamma which allows all other wholesome dhammas to arise in balance and harmony. Mindfulness is life. At any moment that you lack mindfulness, it is as if you are dead. Lack of mindfulness is called heedlessness, and it robs your words and actions of all meaning. Whatever form of recollection mindfulness takes, it gives rise to self-awareness, wisdom, all kinds of good qualities. Any dhamma which lacks mindfulness is incomplete. Mindfulness is what governs standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. It's not only during sitting meditation that mindfulness is required. Outside of formal meditation periods, you must have a constant mindfulness and alertness and give care and attention to your actions. If you do that, 
a sense of why shame will arise. You'll feel ashamed of improper actions or speech. As the sense of shame becomes stronger, then so will restraint. With strong restraint, there is no heedlessness. Wherever you go, mindfulness must be present. The Buddha said, Practice mindfulness a great deal. Develop it a great deal. Mindfulness is the Dhamma that will guard over your past and present actions and those that you are about to perform. It is of great benefit to you. Know yourself at every moment and then you will have a constant sense of right and wrong. That awareness of the rightness and wrongness of everything that occurs in your mind will will arouse a sense of why shame and you will refrain from acting in bad or mistaken ways. Attention to the finer details of the sitting posture has never been a prominent feature. Attention to the finer details of the sitting posture has never been a prominent feature of the Theravada meditation tradition. Very few forest monks sit in full lotus with each foot upturned on the opposite thigh or fold their hands in a perfect mudra. The basic instructions are simply to establish a posture that is stable and erect, with the main criterion being that the posture be one in which the meditator can sit for a reasonably long time with a minimum of unnecessary discomfort. Lumpa treated posture as a straightforward matter. At the beginning of a meditation session, he would simply give instructions to take the cross-legged posture, place the right leg on the left, right hand on the left, keep the back straight, make oneself comfortable, not too tense, not too relaxed, and close the eyes. That was uh, sometimes the, and it was very basic, very straightforward, and to him quite uh, kind of obvious. And because uh, oftentimes you say, yeah, you just sit there, you sit quietly, put your attention on the breath, uh, you pay attention to your breath coming in, going out for a while, and your mind becomes peaceful. <laughs> it was sort of, it was. Uh, it was very, uh, um, it was really interesting and, and, uh, uh, how do you say, um, uh, almost uh, confusing or comedic when we would come to him with all of these, the machinations of their mind was cranking out. And it was, but, uh, um, uh, you know, I think as he as he uh, was uh, had more experience with with us as Westerners, and then he started to get a, a, a say a, a good feel of what the uh, what were the what we uh, came were were tended to come up with, and so he would uh, would sometimes just be very. Um, encouraging to pick up something, but so much of it was just learning how one learning how to relax, and one learning how to be patient. Those were two sort of aspects of the. In terms of meditation, so much of it isn't so much about technique or getting the method absolutely right, 
just just learn how to relax and settle and and take an interest in the in the in that process of meditation and and that and reflect investigate um, not in the sense of thinking and analyzing and and but just learning how to reflect bring up a, like bring up a mirror to the mind so one sort of starts to see it more clearly so In his expositions of the practice of samadhi, Lumpur usually preferred to avoid speaking in terms of jhanas. Instead, he would refer to the various mental states known as jhana factors that constitute these jhanas. His reasoning was that the jhana factors, such as bliss, sukha, or equanimity, were directly experienceable by the meditator, whereas quote-unquote jhanas were simply names for different constellations of these factors. They were, in other words, conventions, and as such, they could lead the mind away from, rather than towards, awareness of the present reality. And this is instruction. If the mind is clear, then it's just like sitting here normally and seeing things around you. Closing the eyes becomes no different from opening them. Seeing while the eyes are closed becomes the same as seeing with the eyes open. There's no doubt about anything at all. Merely a sense of wonder. How can these things be possible? It's unbelievable, but there they are. There will be sustained appreciation, vichara, arising spontaneously in conjunction with rapture, happiness, a fullness of heart and lucid calm. Subsequently, the mind will become even more refined and will be able to discard the meditation object. Now, vitaka, the lifting of the mind onto the object, will be absent, and so will vichara, the the, uh, the subsequent uh, thought of it. We say the mind discards vitaka and vichara, but actually, it's not so much that they're discarded, what is really meant is that the mind becomes more concentrated, more compact. When it's calm, then initial thought and sustained thought are too coarse to stay within it. And so it's said that they are discarded. Without initial thought, lifting the mind to the object and sustained thought to appreciate its nature, there is simply this experience of repleteness, bliss, and one-pointedness, uh, unification, ekagata. I don't use the terms first, second, third, and fourth jhana. I speak only of lucid calm and of initial thought, sustained thought, rapture, bliss, and unity, and of their progressive abandonment until only equanimity remains. This development is called the power of samadhi natural expressions of the mind that has realized lucid calm. So there is a gradual movement in stages that depends on constant and frequent practice. Once Lumpur was asked about the relationship between the first four jhana factors and the fifth um, uh, ekakata, one-pointedness, unification, 
um, usually translated into Thai as meaning single-focused, and in English as one-pointed. He replied that ekagata was like a bowl, and the other four factors were like fruit in the bowl. A cat watching a mouse hole has a kind of samadhi, and so does a safecracker, but theirs is a natural, amoral concentration of instinct and desire, not the samadhi that issues from a disciplined gathering of inner forces and which provides the foundation of wisdom. The Buddha distinguished between right samadhi, samma samadhi, an essential element of the path to liberation, and wrong samadhi, mitcha samadhi, which leads away from it. Lumpa explained that the term wrong samadhi included any state of calm that lacked the awareness necessary to create the foundation for insight. That's a quote from the poem. Samadhi can be divided into two kinds, wrong samadhi and right samadhi. Take good notice of this distinction. In wrong samadhi, the mind is unwavering. It enters a calmness which is completely silent and lacking all awareness. You can be in that state for a couple of hours, or even all day. But during that time, you have no idea where you've got to or what the state of your mind is. This is wrong samadhi. It's like a knife that you've sharpened well and then just put away without using. You gain no benefit from it. It's a deluded calm that lacks alertness. You think you think that you've reached the, the end of the practice of meditation and don't search for anything more. It's a danger, an enemy. At this stage, it's dangerous to you because it prevents wisdom from arising. There can be no wisdom without a sense of moral discrimination. Right samadhi could be known by the clarity of awareness. There's a quote again. No matter how deep right samadhi becomes, it is always accompanied by awareness. There is a perfect mindfulness and alertness, a constant knowing. Right samadhi is a kind of samadhi that never leads you astray. This is a point the practitioners should clearly understand. You can never dispense with the knowing. For it to be right samadhi, the knowing must be present from the beginning right until the end. Please keep observing this. That's quite important because uh, the mind is capable of many states of, of, of unification, of concentration. But uh, that quality of knowing and a certain sense of ease, I think that is, is really, really important. That there, and uh, uh, that, that ease and that, that, uh, uh, that quality of knowing uh, is really what takes one to, to the, uh, the places of, of, of insight.
So the another aspect of say words that come up in the uh, in the practice uh, samatha and vipassana um, the uh, they're often they're treated as as quite separate um, so I'll just read some of, of this there's a, a little section on this a samatha and vipassana In the Theravada tradition, most of the discourse concerning the two chief aspects of Buddhist meditation practice, the calming of the mind and the cultivation of wisdom, has revolved around the term samatha and vipassana. Samatha meaning tranquility, serenity, lucid calm. Vipassana literally meaning clear seeing. And refers to insight into the three characteristics of existence. Although the Buddha himself did not use these terms with any great frequency, they gained much prominence in the centuries following his death. Their meaning expanded to include not only the states themselves, but also the practices directly aimed at cultivating them. Focusing on a mantra, for example, came to be called a samatha practice, whereas investigating the impermanent nature of feelings, a vipassana practice. The two terms have long been the subject of scholarly controversy. Disagreements have tended to center on the relationship between the two. In particular, as mentioned in an earlier section, the extent to which the lucid calm of samatha must be developed before an authentic vipassana insight can occur. When referring to these terms, Lumpur would speak of them as two aspects of practice that were developed in unison, rather than two separate entities. There's a footnote on that, and it says generally Lumpur would use samatha and samadhi, vipassana and wisdom interchangeably. Just as an axe needed to be made with, with both sufficient weight and sharpness to do its job, so the mind that could penetrate the truth of things needed both stability and discernment. Nevertheless, given that the focus in the early stages of practice is suppression of the hindrances and in its culminating phase, insight into the nature of things, Lumpur recognized a shift of emphasis which he would characterize as an organic process of maturation. It, occur, it occurred the way, he said, that an unripe mango became ripe or a child became an adult. From one point of view, the adult might be seen as an altogether different person to the child and from another as an evolved version of the same person. In a similar but more earthy analogy, Lumpur compared the relationship to that between food and excrement. Lumpur also coined the term terms pacification of mind and pacification of defilements to clarify his view of the necessary relationship between samatha and vipassana. And this is a quote. When we develop samadhi, we pacify the mind. But the life of the pacified mind is short. Because it can't withstand a lot of things going on, it lacks true ease. You go to a quiet place and pacify your mind. But the defilements are still there. They haven't been been pacified. 
This is where the distinction can be made. The pacification of the mind and the pacification of the defilements are two different things. The mind can become peaceful easy enough when there are few disturbances. But if it feels some kind of threat, then it can't. There's something still there. You can't let go. You can't put it down. Meditators who took refuge in refined states of mind and feared anything that might disturb the bliss of their samadhi tended to become trapped in doomed attempts to manipulate conditions in order to maintain them. The boldness required to look closely at forms, sounds, odors, tastes, tangible objects and mental states would be lacking in them and their defilements left untouched. In contrast, meditators, at peace after a training in which the calming and wisdom elements had been developed in tandem, would have no fear of sense contact as such and could let go of attachment at the moment of contact with great fluency. They created no owner of their experience. Lumpa said at this stage the practice was fitting to be called vipassana, clear seeing of things in their true light. These conventional expressions, samatha and vipassana, if you want to discuss them separately, you can. But if you want to talk about their relationship, then you have to say that they're inseparable, they're connected. A lay person once came and asked me if these days I was teaching people to practice samatha or vipassana. I said, I don't know, they're trained together. If you answer in terms of what actually happens in the mind, then you have to answer like that. Develop them simultaneously, because they are synonymous. If you develop samadhi without wisdom, it won't last long. In one of his most celebrated discourses, Lumpa captured this idea with a simile. Wisdom is the movement of samadhi. It's like the phrase, still flowing water. The samatha and vipassana of someone who has developed right practice are in harmony and concord and flow like a single stream of water. In the mind of the practitioner, it's as if still water is flowing. The peace of samadhi incorporates wisdom. There is sila, samadhi, and panya together. Wherever you sit, it is still, and yet it flows. It is still flowing water. There is samadhi and panya, samatha and vipassana. Question over there. Question over there. Long pause. Yeah. 
Hi, my name is Carl. Okay. Um, and I read your book, Nibbana, a few times. And I really liked the way Ajahn Chah and how you explained the chain of dependent origination in, in Nibbana. Uh, and I'm trying to just observe and be in the moment. And um, I'm noticing that awareness breaks the chain of dependent origination, just like you were saying, just the awareness being here now and mm-hmm. breathing. Yes, I mean, I think the, uh, uh, again, as, as I read here, the, the importance that Ajahn Chah placed on that mindfulness, on awareness. Um, but, it, but it's also, how do you say, um, it's, not, it's not a narrow awareness, but a, a broad, circumspect awareness. Um, and that awareness that has a, a certain you know, fluency and reflective quality so then it's that awareness that mindfulness is then seeing things much more in their true nature and the that momentum of desire and attachment views and opinions um, gets tripped up and that's for our benefit about that. Um, I have a question about okay. I have a, a question about um, attachment. Yes. When you mentioned about um, to, you know a thousand monk at the monastery in uh, Ubon Rajatani. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm you know um, don't understand. Can you explain it to me? The word attachment is it. Anything got to do with it, or? Well, I mean, if, it depends. Attachment is just the word. The when we use the word attachment, it's the it's that clinging, but it also it's also the sustenance that we take on something that. But it but it's always in the form of creating suffering. So it creates some problem, some difficulty. Uh, and so that so it ends in suffering, uh, especially especially you think in terms of the causal process in life or in our mind, desire, attachment, uh, becoming, uh, sense of self, sense of mind. But but it's also it isn't as if one one does nothing. Uh, it's like. Um, in the uh, um, so that, that the, the word for attachment is clinging in an unskillful way, but there's also uh, say an opposite word like upadana is to attach in an unskillful way. Samadana is to attach in a skillful way. So that that one. You know, giving some kind of, um, like Ajahn Chah would say, uh, you you pick up something wisely, and you hold it, and you use it skillfully. That's samadhana. If to pick it up and use it unskillfully and create suffering 
is upadana. So you pick up, a, you say, oh, I'm not going to have any clinging. And, and so you pick up a flashlight, it's dark out, you pick up a flashlight, oh, I'm not supposed to have attachment, you drop the flashlight. I mean, what use is that? It's just, it's, I mean, you might have, oh, I have no clinging. But it's not, it's not useful, it's not beneficial. So that there's an appropriate way to pick up something and use it. There's an inappropriate way, unskillful way, to pick up something and create a problem out of it. That's upa, that's attachment. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, so um, I was a little bit getting confused toward the end of your reading um, because my understanding of samadhi is the one-pointedness of attention, which focuses on the anapana spot. Yeah. And, um, and whereas uh, vipassana is not. <laughs> so okay. when you were reading about how it's the same, I, I just, my understanding just went right out the window. So can yeah. you maybe... Oh, that's great. Well, because one, sometimes, I mean, I think that's something that we, we, we tend to assume that somehow, God, if I can just one point in my mind, I fix it on an object, then I'll, I'll, I'll have samadhi, I'll get samadhi. But, um, but it, it's much more around, like, it, it, in, I, I really like the, because one of the problems with is sometimes just the words that we use, the language we use. Like the word concentration, like I got to concentrate the mind, and uh, and just trying to concentrate the mind. I don't know about you, but I already feel tense and tight. Uh, you know, it doesn't make me feel very happy at all. Um, but in the Thai language, when they translate the word samadhi, uh, then it's like the the firm establishing of the mind. It's a very different because sometimes you can, mind can be firmly established just using a small object, but it could be firmly established in a broad perspective as well, and spacious, still samadhi, uh, in the sense that the mind is stable, it's solid, it's clear. Those are the qualities that 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 one wants to to be, and and also in the. Uh, when the Buddha describes um, samadhi, um, there's there's a few key words that he uses that are really really interesting. Uh, one is uh, um, muttu, which is is like soft, pliable. Which is is you know when you say oh, I've got to fix my mind to the tip of my nose, it's not so soft, not so pliable, uh, and 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 also another word that that the Buddha uses when he describes samadhi, kamaniya, which means it's ready for work. So it's like it's ready to do the work of investigation. It's ready to do the work of of insight. Uh, Yeah, I'm just curious to get your view on the whole mindfulness movement that has kind of happened in the United States mm-hmm. and 
how that, because um, I think it lacks probably the ethical component that um, is taught in Buddhism, and so I'd be just curious to get yeah. your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great that there, that mindfulness is being being presented, it's being learned about, it's being popularized. Uh, but it's also, as you mentioned, it does lack a, an ethical component. But it also opens the doors to, to for once you become a bit more mindful of something, you can start to see something else missing. And so, whatever doorway in, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I think it's it's worthwhile, and the teachings will withstand it. <laughs> Could you speak some about uh, Achan Cha's time with uh, Achan Man mm-hmm. and the uh, influence of that time on his uh, sense of practice? Yes. Um, of course, Achan Man was, was really the, the, the greatest uh, forest master of the 20th century and uh, influenced so many people. And Achan Cha... I uh, have to give a bit of a, a, a perspective again in uh, the, um, uh, say, the non-homogeneous nature of Thai Buddhism, uh, in that uh, even in the practice traditions, there's two fundamental schools of, of, of practice or lineages in Buddhism. And uh, the smaller... Um, uh, group or sect uh, the 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 Miyut, and that was where most of the forest teachers arose out of that arose out of that and Ajahn Man was a was a Damiyut man and Ajahn Cha was a Mahanikaya monk and um, he uh, so that it wasn't so easy to live in each other's monasteries uh, just sectarian nature of human beings unfortunately uh, and uh, uh, but of course there was uh, he went and stayed but to stay for a long period was a bit more complicated so most uh, uh, most of the monks who, who trained with with Ajahn Man probably or a substantial percentage were Mahanikai monks they came they gained faith they practiced with them and they reordained uh, with with uh, with Ajahn Man, and uh, and that was a doubt that there was a uh, there was a few doubts that that Ajahn Chah had when he went to visit Ajahn Man. Ajahn, he didn't live with him for that many days. It's like three days, which is actually a standard thing for. Okay, you can visit, but if you're going to stay, you really have to make a commitment and start contemplating a changing lineage. And uh, there was there was a doubt that he had about um, uh, there's three major things that he took away from 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 his his time with Ajahn Man uh, that were immediate at that time and subsequent to that that he had many many visions of Ajahn Man 
that, that informed me. He was very inspired by it. Uh, but one was the the Ajahn Chah was was studying the the, the rules of training, uh, and that was part and parcel of the uh, most monks in Thailand really don't know the rules of training. They don't know the the vinya discipline. Uh, it's much more passed on through custom tradition. Uh, it's, it's not that they're bad, but they don't not not that refined and developed. Uh, Jin Man uh, was well trained in in the in in the discipline, and Ajahn Chah was studying that, and he was just confused. As to, there's all these rules. How can you keep all these rules? This is so confusing. And and uh, and Ajahn Man sort of said, "Well, you don't you don't need to know all the rules. What you need to do is learn how to be." Mind, develop the mindfulness and the clarity. Learn to if you if you understand your own heart, you'll understand how to live with this quality of. Actually, it was in one of the readings. Is wise, wise shame and and I'm not sure how. I can't remember how it was uh, phrased, but a, um, a circumspection in terms of action and the. Uh, uh, and that's what protects you. Um, you. You don't have to know all the rules, but you'll you will you will be keeping them because you'll have the essence there. So that was a that was a burden that Ajahn Chah was able to 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 drop to getting to the essence of why do we keep all these these rules anyway? It's so to be have that that clarity of mindfulness and a a uh, a wisdom in being able to relinquish what's unskillful. And another aspect was around the question of should he, he ask him, should I live with you? Should I reordain and 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 come and train with you? And and Ajahn Man said, not necessary. Mahanikai needs good monks as well. It was very insightful because uh, he he provided a Ajahn Chah ended up providing a model that was outside of the say the the dummy youth circle, and eighty five percent of all the monks in Thailand are Mahanikaya, so that Ajahn Chah's example managed to influence a large number of of, of contemporary contemporary monks. Something else that he 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 gained from 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 his time with Ajahn Man was an insight, a, a wisdom insight, uh, in terms of how to handle practice. And and in in, in terms of practice, he, he said to, like Ajahn Man was saying, you know, you, know, you develop all this. This practice is do the sitting meditation, walking meditation, develop the mindfulness and you know, investigation. But in the end, what you have to understand is the the difference between the moods of the mind and the essential mind, the mind itself. And he said that because usually what we're caught up in is the moods of the mind, the objects of mind. 
and the fundamental awareness, the radiance of the mind tends to get overlooked. So that informed Ajahn Chah's practice tremendously. Ajahn Chah also ended up training with a couple other um, um, the students of Ajahn Man who were also Mahanikai monks who lived with Ajahn Man in the earlier in the earlier days when Ajahn Chah Ajahn Man was a younger monk and he wasn't so well known in the uh, in the hierarchy and in the culture then there was much easier because he wasn't really all that. Um, tight around the the, 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 the the sectarian issue. He was just looking for people who were practice. And it was as he got more well-known, then people put pressure on him. Uh, to, that's how it works. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, Ajahn Chah, uh, there was two uh, older monks who had trained with Ajahn Man for many years. And uh, both exceptional. And, and one was an older monk in the north, and and v- two different, very person, uh, very different personalities. Uh, Ajahn Kinnerly was a um, he's a very simple monk, very very quiet, very composed, um, very beautiful in everything he did. And Ajahn Tonglat, who was very flamboyant character, big personality, and, uh, and but both great monks. <laughs> We've got a couple more questions here. Um, Bhante, you said um, uh, you were making a distinction between wrong samadhi and right samadhi Mm -hmm. and the quality of wrong samadhi I'm imagining has a certain lack of clarity but a kind of a feeling of settledness and and a question earlier was about um, you can feel the tone of the voice the voice of the inner critic whether it's Mm. okay so can you apply that same thing to this state of concentration or to the state of samadhi? And the question is, uh, I'm assuming wrong samadhi uh, would feel sort of nice, but there'd be a real uh, a lack of clarity. So if one became aware that it was wrong samadhi, would it be concentration that reveals that or mindfulness? I would say it would be mindfulness that reveals it. Because mm-hmm. the concentration is, is what overrides okay. that. And then, and then um, it, it's, certain, it's deceptive in a certain way. Um, because we're so unused to the mind being really settled and and uh, but it's the mindfulness that that sort of says, okay I'm not, it's not uh, it, it's not and there needs to be more reflection there um, you know they with 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 uh, you know the thoughts in our mind and it's a bit more 
it's a bit more apparent um, but with as the mind becomes more settled uh, yeah then the mind becomes more sneaky as well right right (laughs) (laughs) so so could that be known uh, somatically or would it be more of a mental kind of an experience where you're uh, it's the whole package because you you you're 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 you feel it how because how that clarity affects you and how mindfulness affects you it's not just a, oh I thought it was mindful and it wasn't it's more it pervades your whole body and then and then that's also when you come out of a state of concentration but you haven't been, uh, that's been wrong samadhi, there's a, you can feel that in your body as being, there's a certain heavy, uh, you know, not, not, not so spacious, not so, not so bright. Thank you. <laughs> okay, one more here, Jeannie. Longpur, could you speak a little bit about metta in the context of both uh, samadhi and vipassana? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in reality, I never really heard Ajahn Chah talk about, much about metta. Um, he just oozed it. <laughs> you know? um, so, but 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 it's definitely you know say like an one can treat it as an object of samadhi, and use it to absorb into and bring the mind to a place of stability and stillness. But when one uses it as an insight contemplation, you're using that, and but in in my perspective, it's not Ajahn Chah. Uh, uh, is that one is looking at the what, what, what we're starting to look at is the 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 uh, the movement of of the I, me and mine uh, accretion or addition that we put onto it. Uh, so the sense of me and the sense of self that we start investing, and we're seeing that the 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 insight. Of the insight practice where we're really able to release that, that sense of, uh, uh, of I and me and mine around the, the, the metta object, then there's an increase. I mean, actually, the, the, the quality of metta becomes so much more pure. And of course then there's a, a releasing of, of, of attachment. Two more questions. Tina's been getting her hand up there. for, <laughs> And then one more question over here. Actually, I have two questions, so you don't mind. <laughs> um, the first question is, um, and this is out of curiosity, so please forgive me if you... Um, so I was wondering, after you became a monk, how long it took you to have your first insight that was significant to you and if you don't mind my asking, what was that insight? Like, you had an insight and was like, okay, I think I understand. You know, it's like a significant kind of an insight. 
Okay. <laughs> well, you know, actually, you know, probably one of the things that, that led me to becoming a monk was before I uh, became a monk, I started to, when I was interested in meditation, I'd read about Buddhism, I was interested in meditation, never really practiced, never really received any instruction. And uh, um, and then I I uh, um, just uh, almost uh, accidentally stumbled into a, a monastery that that uh, uh, they um, they taught the Mahasi Sayadaw technique of meditation and uh, and said I could. Um, do a retreat I said yeah I'd like to do a retreat and then it's a it's a one month retreat of going staying in a like a meditation cell uh, for you know how 24 hours a day and you sleep for four hours at night and they bring you food twice a day and that was my introduction to meditation (laughs) I didn't know any better (laughs) so okay (laughs) Um, so I did that, and and, uh, and and my mind, I mean, I had some difficulties at first, but then my mind really became very peaceful and very clear, and that, that insight into, uh, into not-self, into non-self, just that sense of this body, uh, this mind, being phenomena that was that was very clear, and the the uh, the uh, the access to it, both insight and and the peacefulness of the mind was accessed through letting go and relinquishment. That was very very clear. So that that uh, so then. Um, been continuing to uh, work away with those the rest of these 40 odd years <laughs> thank you so my question my second question is um, in the beginning when I first started meditation like 20 years ago I noticed that my mind was very restless I could, could sit still but then I felt there was restlessness and I think it was because the way the uh, Burmese monks taught it, I was very much like this, you know, it's like very much like, uh, I have to do this perfectly, and that was really, really stressful. (laughs) And then later on, I learned to relax in the last 10 years or so, and um, lately I find that when I sit for meditation, um, it's been really calming, like much more calming than before, and lately, it's been like really easy to get into the calm. And I wanted to ask you that question between the um, the stillness and the discernment. Because in Ajahn Brahm's book on meditation, he talks about the jhanas and how when you get to a certain point, it's almost like everything drops away. And I had that experience once when everything dropped away and it kind of went pitch black. And... So, 
But then the discernment I know is important because I noticed that lately, <laughs> especially like about a few weeks ago, I noticed I had a lot of wrong view, and <laughs> it was a big insight for me because it made me question everything because it seemed like I had wrong view in almost every part of life, and so that was actually my biggest insight lately. <laughs> It's like after 20 years, I'm like, oh, I have a lot of wrong view. <laughs> And um, so I wanted to kind of talk to you about that. And like, so now when I sit in meditation, and part of me is very calm and still, but then there's a voice that comes up, almost like um, I, and I can't tell whether it's a doubting voice or the restlessness creeping in again, or is it that discernment, that trying, that mindfulness of not being too, too calm and asleep? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, as in the reading. Uh, Ajahn Chah really emphasizing that 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 necessity of awareness and knowing being present. Uh, that's the that's the quality we want to be nurturing, and and so that um, you know and then and then paying attention to that balancing quality of it's like I I, I said of Ajahn Chah, you know, go left, go left. Go right, go right, but it's more. So, how do we keep that balance of 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 evenness and and steadiness, and the knowing, being being present? That's that's the quality. That's 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 what you nurture, and and that's what 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 nourishes that heart of insight. Okay. Vipassana is the knowing. And then the other one is the stillness, the keeping yeah. steady. Okay. Thank okay. You. Okay. There's one more. It's over here. <laughs> I was curious about how Ajahn Chah uh, spoke to the students. The difference between the the passing mood states, especially the positive states, and the essential qualities of the mind and the the radiance of the mind. Well, see, the thing is, is is the because uh, uh, even the I mean, it's not that we don't develop the the positive and the wholesome, but if we don't recognize their their changing nature. And their their say their lack of solid essence, then we try to say, oh, this is who I am. Then we try to prop up that sense of this is me and this is oh, who I really am. And and then of course sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. And then you know, what do we do? So that sets us up. So the 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 for for suffering and the ability to. Uh, recognize uh, even the, the the wholesome and the skillful, the positive, as impermanent. Also, it doesn't dev- it doesn't mean that you you're dismissing it or you're pushing it away, but it's you're realizing its limitation. Uh, as good as it is, it has a limitation. Uh, and as like Ajahn Chah, I remember him saying, uh, like. That he would he would use a phrase. It's it's just that much. Say, you know, as 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 good as it can get, 
It's just that much. Say, as, as bad as things can be sometimes, it's just that much. It's a small thing. And it can, it's only a little thing. <laughs> you know, so as peaceful as the mind can be, you know, it's just this much. You know, as, as confused as the mind can, can get, yeah, it's just this much. It's not a big thing. You know, we tend to, we get into the drama of it, you know. <laughs> and, and that's the problem. That's the identification that, that, that hooks us. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not useful and beneficial and bringing uh, well-being and clarity to ourselves and well-being and goodness to others. It does that, but it, it gets it, it gets problematic when when that sense of identification creeps in. So it's just having that perspective and. In the same way that you 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 look at you know what are what are what are what are good foods for my my body what is healthy what's beneficial and what what aren't and you know you just you make that discernment you you make those choices and you realize oh you need to you need to do that because it's of of of, of long term benefit it's the same with mental states yeah, right and yet we're not always able to rest in the radiant qualities of the mind, the essential mind either. No, no, no. That's the, uh, uh, the uh, um, especially if one tries to, if sets that as the goal and there's this eternal frustration. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that what isn't, 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 I say is not peaceful. It is just not, 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 uh, ready to access happiness and well-being. It's just we don't have to prop it up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do uh, another reading. Some, one more, one last question. Huh? Okay. So, they always, I always hear like such a precious human life and it's so rare to get a human life Mm -hmm. and I've been thinking lately wondering um, why 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 do this is like a big question but like why do people incarnate why are we incarnated what are we achieving in the this plane that we can't achieve on a spiritual plane Uh, yeah it's that that ability to to live a a wise and compassionate life and we've got this we have this opportunity to to discern how to do that, and that's that's very that's really precious. And yeah, you look around, or you look at yourself and say, "Okay, well, yeah, it'd be nice to sort of keep that going for a while." Um, but then you look around the world and you say, oh, "Gee, that's that's really that's really kind of sad. It's worthy of compassion." Uh, that 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 isn't a major motivator for for most human beings. So, so it's very precious when when you do recognize it in yourself or you recognize it in others, and it's really worthy of of, of nurturing. Okay, I'll do a uh, a reading uh, that is again about the practice 
meditation, development, and then take the opportunity to sit quietly. And we'll, we'll end the day at five o'clock as a, uh, uh, with a, uh, that'll, be the, that'll be the day long. We'll end it with um, some quiet time and, and a, uh, uh, reflecting on these, on these teachings. Um, this starts with a, a little section called Beyond the Monkey. One sign that the practice was on the right path was the feeling of sober sadness uh, that arose through constant contemplation of the three characteristics, which evolves into nipita or disenchantment. And it's important, and this is my own commentary. Uh, I mean, there is a sober sadness, there's a disenchantment, but it's important to recognize that this quality of nipita is 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 very bright and radiant. It's like there's a culminate. There's a many many discourses of the Buddha where he gives a progression of the development of the mind, where it's accessed through a variety of ways. Sometimes through virtue, sometimes through uh, wise attention, sometimes through uh, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, through f- f- through faith. Um, uh, then the Buddha starts going through a series that are conditioned. One of the that there's a rising of delight, and then with the arising of delight. Uh, there's an arising of joy, of rapture. With the arising of of joy, there's the arising of of tranquility, um, and with the arising of of tranquility, there's the with a, with tranquility as the condition. Uh, then there's the arising of happiness. And with the arising of happiness, then there's the arising of Samadhi of firm establishing of the mind. With the firm establishing of the mind, there's knowledge and vision of the way things truly are. Then, with the the arising of the knowledge and vision of the way things truly are, there's a rising of disenchantment. So it's not a negative mental state, and it's sometimes because we use the language and we we. we or we hear it described, you know what? Uh, you know, all I have to do is just be averse and miserable to everything, and I'll get enlightened. But it's not, you know, it's not how it works. Uh, there's a this is the, the heart is really bright, and, and there's this steady, stable of what, state of well-being, and then there's this recognition of, gosh, this is really problematic, and there's a there's a pulling back. Disenchantment. I mean, Bodhi for a while translated this as, say, as disgust, which is a very strong word in English. But it's also he, he was using it in its, in its, uh, say, in its original um, um, etymology, in the sense of losing the flavor for, in terms of gust, in terms of gustatory and disgust, as so, so losing the taste. 
And, and so it's that losing the taste that allows the mind to step back from attachment. Because that, that sense of it, attachment and identification is just so deeply rooted. And, uh, and so it's, it's this, this sense of the, the, uh, the contemplation and development of the path. Uh, these are signs of the path arising. So then Ajahn Chah, uh, this is a quote from Ajahn Chah. An illumination takes place and then disenchantment sets in. Disenchantment with his body and mind. Disenchantment with things that arise and pass away and are unstable. You feel it wherever you are. When the mind is disenchanted, its sole interest is in finding the way out of all those things. It sees the suffering inherent in the world the suffering inherent in life. When the mind has entered this state, then wherever you sit, there's nothing but impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. There's nowhere to take hold of anything anymore. If you sit at the foot of a tree, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. If you go to a mountain, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. You see all trees as just one tree. You see all creatures as of one species. You see that nothing deviates from this truth, that all things come into existence, become established, begin to change, and then cease. Lumpur made clear that the disenchantment that he was referring to was not an expression of aversion, for that would have been simply another expression of craving. This disenchantment was the feeling that arose through seeing how mistaken it had been to consider impermanent phenomena as self or belonging to self. It was waking up from the enchantment of body and mind. This is not the monkey, this is a quote, this is not the monkey feeling disenchanted. It's feeling disenchanted with being a monkey. Lumpur maintained that they, the word, and he uses the Thai word, it's uncertain, not sure. Mainan, unsure, not certain. Awareness of the present mental object as changeful, fluid, unreliable, of uncertain outcome, was the unerring guide right from the very beginning of meditation practice until its final conclusion. When mental objects were recognized as changeful, he said, it was like breaching the boat of conceit below the waterline. The sense I am listed to one side and sunk. Lumpur taught that complete liberation of the mind was the result of creating momentum where the tirelessly repeated inner contemplation of the three characteristics in a mind freed from the hindrances was complemented by a steady effort to be mindful and alert to the three characteristics in daily life. Eventually, the constant repetition and increased profundity of the contemplation reached a tipping point and bore fruit. Although Lumpur was reticent about talking in detail about the higher stages of practice, he did on occasion make some important observations. In one of his discourses, he described the case of the meditator who has, quote-unquote, a glimpse of Nibbana, but is unable to fully integrate his understanding and has to return to the work of wisdom until the mind is fully mature. It's a quote. It's like someone, ste- someone who is in the middle of stepping across a stream with one foot on the near bank and the other on the far side. They know for sure that there are two sides to the stream, 
but are unable to cross over it completely, and so they step back. The understanding that there exist two sides to the stream is similar to that of the, the uh, Gotrabhupukala or the Gotrabhujitta. Gotrabhujitta means change of lineage, sort of between the unenlightened and the enlightened. It means that you know the way to go beyond the defilements, but are still unable to go there, and so you step back. Once you know for yourself that this state truly exists, this knowledge remains with you constantly as you continue to practice meditation and develop your Brahmi. You are both certain of the goal and the most direct way to reach it. Right view has been established. The meditator knows the right and the wrong way of practice. They steer between the extremes of pleasure and pain and gradually move down the path of equanimity, but still make mistakes. They know that treading on thorns is painful, but they still can't always avoid doing so. But through constantly laying aside the tendency to attach to all that is pleasant and unpleasant in the world of experience, insight deepens until finally they become, quote-unquote, a knower of the worlds. When the mind is completely seen through personality view, all doubts and attachments to precepts and practices disappear. And now the mind of the practitioner is, quote, in the world but not of it. Lumpa made a comparison with a natural separation of oil and paint in a bottle. You're living in the world and following the conventions of the world, but without attaching to them. When you have to go somewhere, you say you are going. When you are coming, you say you are coming. Whatever you are doing, you use the conventions and language of the world. But it's like the two liquids in a bottle. They're in the same bottle, but don't mix together. You live in the world, but at the same time, you remain separate from it. The mind doesn't create things that around sense contact. Once contact has occurred, you will automatically let go. The mind discards the experience. This means that if you are attracted to something, you experience the attraction in the mind, but don't attach or hold on fast to it. If you have a reaction of aversion, there is simply the experience of aversion arising in the mind and nothing more. There isn't any sense of self arising that attaches and gives meaning and importance to the aversion. In other words, the mind knows how to let go. It knows how to set things aside. Why is it able to let go and put things down? Because the presence of insight means you can clearly see the harmful results that come from attaching to all those mental states. When you see forms, the mind remains undisturbed. When you hear sounds, it remains undisturbed. The mind neither takes a position for or against any sense objects experienced. This is the same for all sense contact, whether it be through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. Whatever thoughts arise in the mind can't disturb you. You're able to let go. You may perceive something as desirable, but you don't attach to that perception or give it any special importance. It simply becomes a condition of mind to be observed without attachment. This is what the Buddha described as experiencing sense objects as just that much. The sense bases are still functioning and experiencing sense objects, but without the process of attachment stimulating movements to and fro in the mind. 
having gained such clear and penetrating insight, means it is sustained at all times. Whether you are sitting meditation with your eyes closed, or even if you are doing something with your eyes open. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be it in formal meditation or not, the clarity of insight remains. When you have unwavering mindfulness of the mind within the mind, you don't forget yourself. Whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, the awareness within makes it impossible to lose mindfulness. It's a state of awareness that prevents you forgetting yourself. Mindfulness has become so strong that it is self-sustaining to the point where it becomes the natural state of the mind. These are the results of training and cultivating the mind. And it is here where you go beyond doubt. Lumpa said that realizing that the constant arising and passing away of all phenomena in accordance with causes and conditions is a fixed invariable truth is to find the only kind of permanence that exists. Realizing this truth of an unchanging changefulness is, he said, the end of the path that needs to be followed. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, the framework for all of Lumpa's practice and teaching, by bringing the eight factors of the Noble Path to maturity, suffering is comprehended, and with factors sustaining suffering abandoned, suffering ceases. Lumpa said, it is as if an arrow has been pulled out of your heart. Take the opportunity to sit quietly and let our arrows drop away.
That concludes our day long. Just to wish everyone well. Take it with you. Don't leave it here. 